I'm Dr. Future, your host. I invite you to join me as together we experience a future quake. 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 Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I'm Tom Truth Tunnel. Bionic. Truth Tunnel. Yep. Where's this coming from? Is this foreshadowing or something, Tom? Yeah, you could call it, uh, you might call me uh, Shraz Luck Bionic. You know, I'm not even going to ask you because I assume it's unrelated to our theme tonight. Shraz Luck Bionic. The, okay. <laughs> Same to you, buddy. Uh, I want to introduce our guest this week. Uh, we have a wonderful gentleman uh, by the name of Ben Carmack, who is the host of the Ben Carmack blog and a good friend of ours. And we're going to be talking about the faith and destiny of the new generation in America. And, Brother Ben, I'd like to welcome you for your first visit to the Future Quake Show. Well, Dr. Future, it's a pleasure to be here and also uh, a pleasure to uh, share uh, hopefully something edifying with the whole uh, Future Quake audience here. Uh, well, <laughs> they've been they've been waiting for that for seven years, so it's about time they got something edifying. So there's no time like the future to get started in there right now. Oh, yeah, you're being much too modest. I've um, I've really enjoyed listening to you guys. Appreciate what you do, and uh, the the new uh, Friday Friday afternoon is usually one of my favorite times of of the week. You know, I look forward to each new show that you guys put out. Is that right? I don't know if, really. <laughs> I don't know if I'll necessarily look forward to hearing myself, but uh Well, just think about, me, think about it, us. We have to listen to ourselves every week. Oh, well. Talk about a drag. Yeah. No, I think I think you're going to be pleased. <laughs> I know our listeners are going to be when uh, when they hear a little bit about you and your background. Well, let me first explain to our audience that you're 23 years old. Right. Uh, you have a vocational degree in land surveying. Right. Uh, you are currently slaving over a pursuit in civil engineering and a degree at the University of Louisville. That's correct. Um, which, you know, Dr. that place... Mater, by I, was, the way. I was getting ready to say they'll mm-hmm. just graduate anybody <laughs> at that place. <laughs> and and you, you see what kind of lofty position you, you can find if you uh, get through there. Right. Just like hosting a uh, <laughs> podcast, you know, that a handful of people listen to around the world. <laughs> so that that's what you can aspire to after that. Right. Uh, well, I, you, you not, all, a, not a bad gig. <laughs> well, it, it pays not so hot, but, you know, it has a benefit. <laughs> yeah. Um, also, you wrote two, uh, for two local newspapers in the Louisville area as well as the Internet. And right. uh, ironically, you were the associate editor of the high school newspaper. And as it turns out, we have a lot in common, Ben. You you, you attended <laughs> yes. the same high school even that I did. Yes. And in, in, in fact, I was even uh, the editor of that newspaper at one time. Really? I did well, not know this. Believe it or not. So we have a legacy there. Wow. Uh, but this my 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 favorite work of that newspaper was the expose that you did on the high school alumnus, Dr. Future, and the Future Quake right. Club for the high school newspaper. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm your personal... Uh, advocate down there tried to put in a good word for you spread spread the word about what somebody was doing and they still Positive let you graduate things. they still let you they graduate. still let me graduate yeah oh, that's, a, that's that's amazing 
Well, you know yeah. what? I think they see that Robert Hyde connection, and that's what really worries them oh, out there. Yeah, I'm sure they do. I'm sure they do. And I'm sure that, that uh, probably doesn't really count in my favor. Another thing that you and I have in common is that yeah. we both had Robert as our teacher. Yeah, that's held us uh, back. Held us back a good bit in our life. No telling what it could have been. <laughs> we probably could have had a... Uh, we probably would be uh, rich and famous and uh, not yeah. appear in the world had it not been for uh, yeah, be part of the establishment. <laughs> Mr. Hyde. Yeah, we yeah. missed that on it. You know, but what's interesting is that it, it, your trouble started early because you actually okay. got in trouble at school, uh, at the Christian school for your editorial about Israel and Zionism. Correct. didn't have the exact position that everyone thought you should take without discussing. And the yeah. fact that you asked some hard questions caused a lot of flack. Yeah, it did. Uh, and it, it, it was a, it, it surprised me a little bit because I thought that I had tried to be reasonable, but uh, it's not the first time I've been wrong about my uh, how what I will say will affect other people. So, uh, but it was a real eye-opening experience. I think, in retrospect, looking back on it, I was probably trying to handle too much there. Uh, but I did what I did, and you can't change the past. So well, wasn't it? Ha- ha- open. Hegel said that that which does not kill you makes you stronger. Yeah, I guess that's. Uh, I guess that he has a point there, doesn't he? So, but he's know. dead. <laughs> well, he, yeah, but he's dead. Yeah. Thanks, Tom. Uh, yeah. We see it. It didn't make him stronger because it killed him, Tom. Whatever it was. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but I think my favorite work that you did when when you did your article and you actually came down to uh, our locality here to do an on-site interview with Dr. Future is when I read your article later, you put things in there that I didn't know I'd said. And I read in the article (laughs) that when I let you in the door, into the front door here, that that this was the place I said where where Dr. Future greeted foreign dignitaries and heads of state. Right. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I wanted to include that because I wanted to give people a a look at your sense of humor, which... uh, Uh Very understated and uh, kind yeah. of sense of humor I've been known to engage in. Yeah. Or maybe it's a maybe it's a maybe it's a University of Louisville Speed School thing. I don't know. I don't know the coping <laughs> mechanism. You know, my humor is not just understated; it's often undetected. Right. It's, it's that locale. Well, I, I want to conclude because I want I, by outing you as a member of the NRB thirteen. Uh, that yeah, that's pra- true. I was there. You were one of the NRB 13 that prayed with us this past February on site at the National Religious Broadcasters Convention here in Nashville. And uh, I, I hope there's something happening in the heavenlies that was good from that because I know there was a lot of what I consider bad stuff happening behind closed doors there at the same time, uh, the more what I found. But I, I just want to thank, thank you publicly. I believe we were praying. Uh, wasn't uh, the the Speaker of the House speaking at that time? Isn't yes. That what we found out. John Boehner, and then they were having behind closed doors a meeting with the former head of the CIA and oh. some other Delta Force guys and uh, Rick Joyner and some others, uh, basically getting all of the uh, religious broadcaster leaders and other Christian leadership on board to the Sharia law and fighting Muslims being the number one goal in society. Oh. That was happening that around that same period of time where we were praying outside. So very very interesting circumstances. But, you know, having said all this in introduction to you, could could you briefly explain to our audience a little bit about your religious background and your Christian testimony relationship to Christ? Sure. It's 
it can be a little uh, complicated, but I'll try to keep it as brief as I can. I was okay. the church that my parents uh, raised me in from the time that I was very small until uh, they're, they're still in that church now. I have chosen to go elsewhere as I've gotten older and kind of wanted to branch out. But uh, it started out as a uh, Mennonite congregation, and over time the pastor and some people in the leadership kind of got interested in the, the gifts of the Spirit and the charismatic uh, wave. I'm not sure if you'd call it third wave or fourth wave or whatever yeah. wave it was, but they uh, they got interested in that. We were never really strongly charismatic. We never had people, you know, speak in tongues and jump around or anything like that. We were, pre- we were pretty sedate, but still it was something uh, that was encouraged people were encouraged to seek out, you know, spiritual gifts and leadings and prophecies and so forth. And uh, that was kind of the environment that I grew up in. Very conservative, uh, I would say. Uh, not really uh, fundamentalist, if you want to mm-hmm. use that term. More conservative evangelical church, pretty mainstream kind of an environment. I accepted Christ when I was Eight years old. It was a cold day in February. I don't remember the exact date. But uh, I was baptized about two years later because we didn't have a baptistry in our church. And uh, shortly after that, I started going to Portland Christian when I was in the eighth grade. Before that, I went to public schools and came in contact with Robert Hyde there, and that really strengthened my uh, walk with God, I would say, walk with Christ and so forth. Lots of interesting things happen there. And uh, I have gone through periods where my faith has been weak and periods where it's been strong, but I don't I don't think I would ever say that I've ever walked away totally at any point. So I would, I would say that I've been a Christian for, uh, let's see, for about uh, 14 years or so, mm-hmm. and 14 and a half years now, so... Mm. <clears throat> How would you describe, in a nutshell, your relationship with Christ right now? In in comparison to, you know, a typical evangelical viewpoint, mindset kind of thing. Well, uh, I have to confess that I'm not not very spiritual, at least not like I used to be. Um, My life has gotten busier. Uh, My sleep schedule is not consistent, and I do not read the scriptures as consistently as I would like. I don't pray as often as I would like. Uh, But one thing that I have picked up here a couple months ago that has been helpful for me uh, was I bought the Book of Common Prayer, 1928 edition, because I heard some bad things about the 1979 edition. Hmm. It was kind of liberal or whatever. So I bought the uh, 1928 edition. And uh, this past Easter... I decided to keep the a traditional Lent, which I had never done before, hmm. and uh, didn't eat meat for 40 days. And uh, I thought I felt like that was a really good experience. It's not something that I think everybody sh- should do yeah. necessarily. I'm not a legalist, but uh, you know, for me at this point in my life, it was a a good decision. Hmm. So you're finding a connection with, uh, I don't know how to properly phrase it, a little more liturgical experience, more traditional experience with yeah, God as something that's I've, resonating uh, in this phase of your life? 
Yeah, I've uh, I've found a resonance with that because I feel like it's a little more, you know, it just feels more rooted, uh, less emotional. One mm-hmm. of the things that I've felt guilty about for a while is uh, the churches, the churches that I've been a part of, have encouraged a lot of emotion, but sometimes when you run into tough circumstances in your life, you find it hard to be excited about going to church. I went through about a year or so where I found it extremely difficult to make myself go to church or to feel excited about what was going on, and I felt like there was so, that there was something wrong with me, and, and there probably was, that's the thing, but I think... I think also it was just it was just a phase in life uh dealing with uh different different things different circumstances that I don't want to get into now cuz they're personal but uh I think that the liturgical traditions allow you to go through tough times and not feel like you're somehow letting God down because mm. you don't feel real real happy at the moment yeah uh but mm. But I, but you can still show up and receive the grace that is available um, through uh, a sacramental worship, um, and, 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 the, and the cool thing about it, the, the really cool thing about it, is that if you're worshiping with a sacramental attitude, you can receive the grace of Christ. And you don't have to do anything. You don't have to have the, the slickest preacher in town or the most cool preacher or the, the coolest worship band or the, you know, the most mm-hmm. uh, up-to-date music or anything. You can just sit there and it'll just come to you. You don't have to do anything. And that's mm-hmm. kind of what the gospel is in a nutshell. We, don't, we can't do anything to, you know, earn our salvation. We just, we just have to receive it, you know. We have to learn to uh, receive it. And that's just been something that I've been thinking on for a while. You know, that's an interesting thought, Ben, because I hadn't really thought about it that way. You know, my background and more of the Baptist background is sort of like in the middle. It really didn't get into the charismatic stuff, and it really wasn't liturgical. It was somewhere, you know... We got excited hearing "Just as I Am," you know, during the yeah. uh, invitation hymn, <laughs> and uh, usually it was the three points in the poem that got a response. Of course, it was limited to tapping a toe, you know. We didn't right. do anything above that, <laughs> nothing like raising hands. But, right. but, uh, but what's interesting that I hadn't thought about till you just said this because, you know, most people who are not into, the, like you say, the more liturgical, you know, like a Presbyterian, Episcopal, whatever, beyond from there. And it's, it's hard to stereotype with a single thing. But um, people who are outside of that think that that must be incredibly sterile and lifeless and dead. Right. But what you just said got me thinking in that. And I certainly know my experience with some of the people I've known who've had some of the most ecstatic experiences uh, w- with God where, you know, they're just in a euphoria. They uh-huh. are the people who also I know that have the lowest lows. And it does seem like they ride a spiritual roller coaster. And um, I think, I mean, they probably prefer it that way. But uh, they have they have the most supreme encounters, but then they have crises frequently. And what you're talking about is something that is not tied to an emotion-based response. If someone was on that side, they'd look to it as dead. You see it as something that actually supersedes the emotion 
and it's not certainly a circumstance or feeling-based faith. And, uh, and those mm-hmm. of us who don't go through a liturgical kind of background need to respect that, that, that people find something. And then, and then the point you just made, which I'd never really thought about, was the fact that even though maybe we don't consciously think about it, people, a lot of people today in our evangelical churches go to church to be entertained and to go there yeah. for what's in it for them. What are they going to receive? Uh, what what are, the, what are they going to receive as something that and it, it's not just necessarily great music. It can be this great intellectual point or humor right. or something, something yeah. that really floats their boat. And they they never really think about something that transcends all that. And yeah. it, that's really interesting that I think about what you said and the reasons why is that. You have an experience that is, you know, through confessions and through other kind of things, they are always true, regardless of how you feel every week. Yeah. Well, I should point out that I don't attend a liturgical church and never really have. Yeah. I've I've visited a few times, but I I don't feel that I can for various reasons. Uh, they Many of the liturgical churches are very hierarchical. Right. And they insist that you believe exactly like they do. And I've always been kind of a independent thinker. Uh, one thing that most uh, all liturgical churches believe in is, you know, things like infant baptism, which right. you know, I've thought about and I really can't accept. And so, for that reason, I would not feel comfortable joining a liturgical church. But, uh, so I'm still in a, you know, traditional evangelical setting. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I'm comfortable with that, and uh, I feel like I can do the most good there. And but if but if anybody ever invites me to go with them to, uh, you know, a more uh, high church or whatever yeah. you want to call it, right? Kind of worship. I'm 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 open to it, but I I don't feel comfortable joining one because of various you know right. theological disagreements. <laughs> well, um. Were there any other influences in your life that led to your rather, you know, I know enough of you to know it's a, you, you are a free thinker. I certainly know that to be be the case. Any other major influences in your life that have led you taking a different path in your thinking than, say, the average Christian in our country? Well, I would I would certainly point to my parents. Uh, my parents are both musicians. Uh, neither one of whom they, (laughs) yeah, no, neither one of them were raised in a Christian home and they came to faith, uh, as I think my mom came to faith when she was about, I don't know, I don't want to, I don't want to say the age because I don't exactly remember, but when she was younger and a child and my dad became a Christian, he was about 17, 18. And, uh, my dad was into the rock, local rock band scene. He was a part of a few garage groups. Yeah. And uh he was invited he was invited to uh play in the uh play the piano for the choir at uh the church that my mom attended because oh. they needed somebody to play piano for a piece they were doing and you know he, he was very much out of his element and he and he, he said I did a terrible job because I wasn't familiar with the song and I wasn't familiar with how you're supposed to play music in church and all this kind of stuff. 
But he said everybody afterwards just congratulated him and said what a great job he did. And he said he, he said he thought to himself, these Christians, they're, 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 they're just an odd bunch, you know. They're, they're giving well, me all this encouragement. Isn't that true? It went when, the, when I did such a terrible job. But anyways, later on, in part through the influence of the girl that he was dating, who not my mother, who went to that church, he became a Christian. Hmm. Later met my mom, they got married, and they traveled all over the country uh singing playing music in in churches playing revivals and that kind of stuff and uh and as a result we uh they kind of instilled in me from a young age kind of a uh desire to seek seek after God in your own way obviously with the scripture as your god but to branch out and you know not be afraid to maybe try some different things you know, they're, they're, they're both kind of uh, free spirits, kind of hippie-type mm-hmm. people, and that's kind of how I was raised. And then later, running into uh, Robert Hyde kind of amplified that. But I would say the, the most important influence would probably be from my uh, parents, both of whom, you know, I mm-hmm. owe a great deal to. They're the ones who introduced me to the Lord, and uh, they both sacrificed a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, my dad had to go to a job he hated for yeah. for years and years, so that we could, uh, you know, we could afford to do the the things that we did and uh, have the things that we needed. And uh, you know, as, as I get older and kind of understand more of what that's like, uh, kind of, you know, getting initiated into a engineering career i've been working mm-hmm. for an engineering firm for about two years now and you kind of realize how how life can get sometimes how it can get mm-hmm. kind of repetitive and you, you, i have a very much renewed respect for my parents and what they went through yep. and how they did it so well if you get that engineering <laughs> degree done you'll you'll have your own job you hate you know yeah. as you move on in life <laughs> is your goal yeah hey um Exactly. Uh, I uh, I, I want to get on into our main part. I know our time's getting away here, but um, okay. I've heard you say something about that in the next century that you believe that there will be a major decline in American power and influence in the world. What, why do you think that's true? And are there any practical ways to prevent this? And should we even try? I would say no, there are no practical ways to prevent it because the people who are in charge, uh, you know, people like President Obama, members of Congress, the people who uh, shape, the, the people who shape uh, what is broadcast, the media, the executives of the major media, the uh, executives of the major corporations are not presidents of universities and so forth, they are not interested in changing it or they don't understand what is happening. And so I would say that the forces that are kind of leading to this decline will not be stopped because the people who can stop them do not want to stop them. And uh, this debt ceiling thing, which kind of cropped up here uh, in the run-up to our show tonight, is interesting to me because, you know, you think about the bailout package that went on in uh, 2008 where Congress rejected it. And then the bankers, the international, for lack of a better term, the bankers uh, applied all this pressure 
to get the bailout package approved. And there, you know, there was one guy who stood up on the floor and said, if "We were told that if we don't vote for this, we'll have martial law." You know, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm sure you two are familiar with that. Right. And there, there was this. So as the country was on the verge of something big, a big financial collapse, the the elite put in all this pressure to make sure that the Congress did what they were supposed to do. But in this case, we came to the precipice and nothing, it didn't seem like anything was necessarily stopping it. It it seemed like we were, they were going to take us right to the edge and then all of a sudden, you know, take it back. And I thought that was interesting because why, why didn't they allow that to happen back in 08, but they allowed it to happen now? And it's kind of making me suspect that maybe they have decided, the bankers and the the people who really run things have decided that it may it may be in their best interest to let things get worse, maybe so that they can consolidate their power or uh, or whatever. I know that other people have aired those views, like G. Edward Griffin. I know has said that for many years. But it, it it's it's just surprising to me to see that. Uh, I think I think one thing I, I think you would agree with me. Once you start to understanding these kind of things, is that things that happen in our news and history aren't by accident. They don't just happen no. and surprise everybody, <laughs> and we all react to them. They are carefully engineered and directed. And if you if you want to try to understand where things may go, look where the very powerful money interests are. And think what would be in their best interest. What would be the kind of things that would further their aims? And you probably have a pretty good idea what the next steps are going to be. Right. They can surprise us a few times, you know, in something that we hadn't even thought of. But um, once you see that, suddenly things start making sense as not just being random crises that appear, you know, periodically. And, right. Um, so, so if you're saying this is sort of an inevitability of decline of our of our country. Why? What? What is the purpose for the decline of America? You think? Well, this is this is where we have to get into something that I've researched, and I know will be controversial for many of your listeners, and that is the subject of peak oil. Uh, there are there is a 9/11 researcher that has done a lot of. Uh, when I say 9/11 researcher, I mean researcher into the, you know, what really happened on 9/11, which you all have talked about on your show before. Uh, this guy, his name is uh, Michael Rupert, and Michael Rupert uh, got into the conspiracy theory game uh, about 30 years ago when he was a cop in Los Angeles. He discovered that the CIA was very much involved in the drug trade, uh, which they have been for many, many, mm-hmm. many decades. And, uh, and he, still, of- he still lives to talk about it? Oh yeah, he's he's still alive. Unlike uh, some of the other guys, yeah. <laughs> but he he became a journalist, an investigative journalist, and he uh, I should I should warn your listeners he leans very far to the left on most things, but I still find him to be a credible source. I have read uh, large portions of his book that he wrote about 9/11 called uh, Crossing the Rubicon. And kind of the, the case that he makes in that book is that the is that there had to be a motive for 9/11. Why why would our leaders go to such lengths to stage a terrorist attack like 
uh, unless that there was some reason, some reason why they wanted to do this. And he, he, uh, he has uh, constructed a very compelling narrative that says that the reason they did it was because of scarce energy supplies. And uh, one, the smoking gun evidence that he provides in his book uh, comes from a lawsuit that uh, Larry Clayman with Judicial Watch, who you've had on your show before, right. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, sued Vice President Cheney at the beginning of when Bush and Cheney first took office. Uh, Cheney was part of this uh, National Energy Policy Development, development Group uh, to examine where the United States was going to get future sources of energy and so forth. And anyway, this Larry Clayman and Judicial Watch sued the vice president to get access these documents, what they were talking about in this uh, energy group, which were kept top secret. And uh, they, they only released a few pages, uh, but one of, one of the pages that got released, and Michael Ruppert, you know, includes this in his book so you can see it, is a map of the oil fields of Iraq. That was one of the documents that was released. Hmm. And, you know, and, and when you're when you're researching this stuff, you know there, there's no such thing really as a smoking gun. But that's about as close as you can get to it, I think, to know that the oil fields of Iraq were on the minds of key people in the Bush administration very early on, mm-hmm. and the fact that we now know that literally the day after 9/11, they were already talking about you know the possibility of invading Iraq seems to me to paint a, a pretty compelling picture that that oil was definitely part of it and that the scarcity of oil was part of it. And uh, the, the difficulty with this is that there's a lot of alarmists uh, out there who try to uh, justify, you know, things like extreme population control and so forth. And so right. that that causes a lot of people on our side of the fence to say, well, this whole peak oil thing must be a crock because, look, they're calling for population control and we know that this is a new world order you know, thing that they like, this idea of keeping the population under control, promoting things like abortion and euthanasia and so on. Mm -hmm. You know, Andrew Hoffman has documented that very well for us. But uh, I think it's actually more complicated than that. It is true that there are some alarmists, and I'm afraid that Michael Rupert falls into this category, the gentleman I just mentioned. I think that uh, if if you want my opinion on it i think that he he researched the conspiracy stuff so much i think that he kind of went off the deep end a little bit and he he now if you if you read his blogs or listen to the videos that he posts on youtube he'll 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 uh, issue these these doomsday announcements every few months you know it's, it's all going to end next week or whatever and it, and it never does i think it may be possible that the CIA has gotten to him and that he may be a disinformation yeah. uh, force at this point. Or it could be that he just is, you know, researching these terrible things, got to him, and he might be off the deep end. But the fact that he might be off the deep end now doesn't mean that everything that he said mm-hmm. uh, in his books was totally false. Um, you know, it's interesting you mentioned about oil being in Iraq being an issue back before 911 because 
I think right when 911 happened, they interviewed James Woolsey, the recent head of the CIA at the time, mm. and he immediately jumped to it that he thought Iraq was responsible for it. And mm. I think it was nine days after 911, the PNAC report signatories, including Woolsey, um, uh, Frank Gaffney, so these other guys, had a report on their desk with a complete detailed invasion for Iraq. Mm. Uh, nine days, which which we know now, there's absolutely no evidence that they had any involvement. But but then again, they were willing to take, uh, you know, the daughter of the Kuwaiti ambassador and uh, lie to the American public that she was a nurse, you know, and that she watched the incubators being emptied of babies, you know, in Kuwait. Right. So if they'll yeah. lie to to that ridiculous and an extreme for a war, none of this other stuff surprises me either. Yes, I. I, I've not. I'm not familiar with the story you just mentioned. I've I've heard of the incubator baby hoax before, but I, I've, that's certainly another piece of disturbing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, information. They, they hired the uh, the largest PR firm in America, and uh, got the uh, you know the ambassador from Kuwait, his daughter, and made her up to be like a nurse there that was actually in Kuwait witnessing the babies thrown in incubators, and that secured the final votes, you know, from the Congress people listening to to go for a war. And we found all this was just like the Gulf of Tonkin. It was something that was sort of made up. Right. Well, I'd like to uh, I'd like to just share briefly kind of I've, – I've done a little bit of research into this peak oil thing, and people can make up their own decisions and their own minds about it, but I'd – if I could, I could just share a few details unless you had another issue you wanted to ask. I want to talk about farming, but give us some quick, oh, okay. quick tidbits on peak wall, something they need to know. Um, well, there are a number of ex-employees of oil companies who have, who made their money and retired and now they're, you know, they, they, they write and speak or they teach in universities. Guys who are pretty well off who don't really have a reason to be lying about what they're saying. A lot of these guys have come out in the last several years and have have warned about the possibility that we are facing a future of expensive uh, energy and how this might affect our economy. And there was a there was a gentleman who worked for Shell Oil many years ago called. Uh, M. King Hubbard, who issued a prediction in 1956 that the United States would peak in oil production about 1970. He predicted that uh, the United States would peak at the end of the 60s, beginning of the 70s. And his prediction was dead on. We peaked in 1971. Ever since that time, the amount of oil that we produce domestically in this country has been on the decline. We've never been as high as we were then. And another thing that he predicted that same year, this is in 1956, was that the United States, that the world would peak in oil production around the year 2000. And that's kind of what has all these guys interested in writing about it and trying to figure out what it all means. Uh, it's not as bad as some of them say. A lot of people thought that we had hit peak back in 2008 when the price of gas shot to four bucks a gallon and then it dropped to I think about a buck fifty or less, at least where I was living at the time, uh by the spring of two thousand nine. And so that causes me to think 
that we probably didn't hit peak at that point, because if we had, you would have expected the price of fuel to get more expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know much about it, but that would be what I would have predicted. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that leads me to think that the spike that we saw back in that back at that time was probably due to speculation from uh, bankers and financiers and people like that, mm-hmm. and uh, not due to any real constraint on supply. But I think it's something that we need to be concerned about because as far as we know, the, the, the evidence that we have just from exploring and using it mm-hmm. is that oil is a finite resource. We, you, you, you dig a well, you have increase in production, you peak, and then you decline. There have been some scientists who have proposed that, in fact, the Earth continuously generates oil, right. which I'm interested in. The abiotic We've oil. certainly found yeah. evidence of this which I'm also interested in, and I think there's probably a good chance that those guys are right. The only problem with that is we don't know how fast that happens, and judging from our experience, since when every time we tap an oil well, it peaks and declines, it probably doesn't regenerate very fast. Right. Which means even if even if the geologists are wrong in their theories about it, we... we we're still going to have a problem. Mm-hmm. So, what, what do you problem, think? I'm sorry. The, the the big problem with this is the reason why this is important is is that the the United States, the world economy, depends on us cheap energy to create jobs, generate growth, you know, beat recessions, and so forth. And it's interesting to me to see that in this latest recession, we've we uh, of course we went through the initial crash, but then it's we've had all these years where the economy has been growing slowly, but we but people still don't have jobs. And what we're being told is is that these these co- these corporations are making their money, they're making record profits, and they're just sitting on the money. They're not investing it. They're not hiring people. They're not building plants. They're not doing this. They're not doing that. And part of that might be that the regulations and the taxes are too high, which I think is certainly a factor. But another part might be, what if those guys in charge of those of those companies know something that you and I don't? What if they've been told by key investors and energy experts that the supply of oil is constrained right now, that we're getting close to peak, and that if they start investing in building new plants, the energy that it will require to build those plants will be too expensive to make the investment worth it. And what if that's the reason these guys are sitting on the money instead of investing it? I think that that's something that you definitely need to think about going forward. Because if that's true, if that's true, if if, if we are facing uh, a future where energy will be scarce, and if that's the reason why we are in Iraq, the reason why 9-11 occurred is because our government leaders felt that they needed to get their hands on as much of the mm-hmm. stuff as possible in order to prevent, you know, a crisis. And it, and maybe and while we're in Libya, maybe while we're there. Correct. Libya is also part of this. Part and of Nigeria. This Nigeria. And Nigeria. Yeah, not a lot of people know that. Not a lot of people know that we're heavily involved in Nigeria right now. Yeah. 
Well, I just, that's the first I had heard of it, for yeah. sure. <clears throat> that's one they keep under their hat a lot. Hmm. That's the biggest oil producer in Africa, isn't it? It's Nigeria. Yar. They're like one of the biggest in the world. Yep. Uh. But it kind of makes you wonder, why is our government going to such lengths, going to such extremes to occupy these countries if peak oil is just a made-up thing, if there's no truth to it, you know? It causes me to think there's got to be at least something to it. I, the, thing, the thing that I would caution people against is the temptation is, is once you start researching this stuff is to think that, you know, everything's going to collapse and it's going to be terrible and we've all just got to stock up our weapons and go out into the woods somewhere and mm-hmm. wait it out. I would encourage people not to do that. Um, well, first of all, before you change gears here, <laughs> I just want to tell people if they want to know what it's like, you know, a couple of years into peak oil, to just watch the movie The Road Warrior. And it will probably be like that where you'll have just individuals like us taking over, you know, mm-hmm. oil platforms in the desert and we'll have mohawked motorcycle gangs attacking <laughs> us for it. At least to get a free haircut out of the deal. Well, yeah. Yeah. In fact, the future mobile would be a lot like the Road Warriors car, probably having to fight off some of these mutants yeah. to get from one exactly. oil site Could to be. the next. So, you know, that, that's sort of what I'm expecting is the most likely scenario. But uh, I, I know you are not an alarmist that, that just believes in running to the hills. No. I, I th- and, and don't let me put words in your mouth here, but I, from the time I've known you, I think you really have earned, learned and earned a respect for a more sustainable lifestyle as an alternative. Is that not true? Yeah. A lifestyle yeah, that's that. really more imbalanced, and that it's not a nasty word in the com- in the Christian community to say to live a lifestyle that's consistent with the, with the goods that the Lord has given us here on this earth. Yes, I think that's exactly true. Uh, one of the big influences, Robert, Robert Hyde played a role in this, is that he lent me a book by Wendell Berry back when I was a freshman in high school at Portland, and I read that, and it really changed my thinking on a number of things, but it took a while for it to sink in. It, it wasn't until about four or five years later that it really started sinking in that this that the sustainable, I don't like to use the word sustainable because it's it's gotten a lot of UN and uh, uh-huh. establishment connotations now, so I, I like to stay away from that word. Same thing with the word organic. I like to stay away from that word as well, if I possibly can. Uh, I would prefer to say that it's it's just a responsible way of life. Uh, I don't think you necessarily have to use the adjective sustainable or organic, just a responsible way of life. I think it's a Christian way to live because just from what little research I've done on the early church, mostly from reading the book of Acts and occasionally some church fathers, although they can be confusing and murky, is that... Uh, the early Christians really believed in sharing everything and living in community and taking care of each other. And I think that's really the kind of a lifestyle that more of us are going to have to live in the future if, you know, energy continues to get more expensive and the recession uh, is prolonged. period of unemployment is probably going to continue. And... As our country continues to spend more and more money, get more and more in debt, uh, the prospect of uh, of the dollar being in serious decline and us having real serious inflation 
you know, that the possibility of that grows stronger every day. The need for people to really rely on one another and care for one another is going to be very important. It's not just going to be a nice thing to say. It's really going to be something that we really have to do. And I have to confess, uh, I don't know how all that will play out because, unfortunately, the church, I feel, has bought into a lot of our American uh, values of, uh, you know, rugged individualism where this this idea that what's mine is mine and what's yours is yours and I don't know owe anybody anything. And I, I feel like that's, uh, at the risk of sounding like a liberal here, I'm, I'm going to say I, I don't think that's the way that a Christian should think. I don't think it's the way Jesus would have us behave. I think that Jesus wants us to be grateful for what we have, to acknowledge that other people have contributed to our success, and that we're all related, that what we do affects uh, everybody else, and that uh, this idea that we're just all islands, independent islands that uh, don't owe anybody anything is a uh, false a false notion. Um, you know, I take that. Should, yeah. I take that to mean from your. We look at the legacy of our life, whether the instructors at our schools or the people who sacrificed even generations before us that provided what we have. We owe a debt to them in future generations. But even those who say, "Look, I, I just want to be individual, use my own stuff, and be left alone," they often don't think through things completely and think, "Well, okay." You can have a huge SUV and burn tons of fuel, you know, carrying one person around. Uh, you have a right, but you know what? That's oil that somebody else doesn't get to use. There's a finite right. resource that people have. Or I can pollute not only in the air, but in the I can put whatever I want on my land I want and just let the stuff run off where it wants. Well, that pollution runs somewhere else. And right. so, you know, from someone from a conservative background like myself, and I think you have those influences too to, to some extent, you know, yeah, we like that, we embrace that naturally, but we really don't think through the totality of the impact of our actions on other people in those kind of ways. What do we pump in the air that impacts the way it doesn't just stay over our property, it goes out and impacts other people or use up resources in a short supply, and we automatically consign th that thinking to liberal, godless kind of activity, and I don't know whether it's some legacy of our perverted view of dominion over the earth, that we think dominion over the earth means run it into the ground so the Lord will come back real quick, or what, right. but somehow we have divorced responsibility and caretaking, and, and, and again, a lot of the information gets murky because people on the left or other people have made political statements out of these things. Yeah, but, but, but I, we, think that this, yeah. I think that these crusades for population control have very, very, been very, very harmful to the environmental movement. And, uh, for instance, my, one of the things that Michael Ruppert has said is that we need to reduce the population of the Earth by 5 billion people. Because apparently if we don't have enough, if we don't have, if we don't have cheap oil, we can only sustain one-sixth of the population that we have now, which to me sounds ridiculous because uh, the amount of oil that we consume as individuals in this country and in the West in general is so much higher than what most people in the world enjoy. You know, the, mm -hmm. our lifestyle here is so wealthy compared to... If, 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 all you have to do is just take a short, you know, trip into Mexico 
and mm-hmm. see how people live down there, and you realize just how little most people in the world live with compared to us. Well, even and England, think, even even right. England and other you know advanced European countries use a fraction of the resources that we make, make a whole yes. lot less waste than what we make. Uh, and I it, think that the New World Order takes advantage of our prosperity. I'm calling the New World Order. I assume that your listeners will know what I'm talking about. I'm referring to the... Yeah, this is Future Baker. Quake, by the way. So, yeah. <laughs> Have you heard of it? They'll know yeah. about New World Rockefeller Order. Rockefeller Nephilim. There, we got it out of the way. Yeah. <laughs> I think that the New World Order takes advantage of our prosperity to make, so, make us think that everybody in the world lives just like we do, and everybody in, consumes as much as we do, and our way of living is the only way to live, and therefore we've or, just got to... Or we don't care, Ben. Or we, we don't, we don't care. care. We see the people with the bloated bellies on TV, and we may shed a tear until we can change the channel to the next channel. Personal you know, peace and affluence. We are yeah. a Christian nation, and as a Christian nation, we deserve our great wealth because that's how God rewards Christian people is giving them great wealth. Yeah. I've heard that in many an evangelical church, so how much more so our nation being a Christian nation. And, you know, if God doesn't give it, we'll we'll just go take it from him. Yeah, we're not going to get our hands on it. That's our attitude. But I think that we, we, we have this, this myopic view where we think that since everybody must live like we do, therefore it's unsustainable. Therefore, we have to reduce the population so that everybody can afford, so that everybody in the world can afford to live as wastefully as we do. And I think that's the total opposite <laughs> yeah. way to think about it. I think that the, I think a more healthy way to think about it would be to say, how can we accommodate as many human beings as we can and take care of as many people as we can and use, you know, as little as we can, rather than saying we have to use as much as we can, therefore everybody else has to roll over for us, you know. Well, first of all, I, I just want to say I don't think we have to worry about you know population expansion as long as Monsanto's around because yeah. they're going to do a good job to keep population to a minimum. Even, right. even all the farmers that commit suicide in India, you know, because of their uh, Terminator seeds and things like that. So, oh, so isn't that awful? Monsanto will take care of the population control. That and Bill Gates. Yeah, and Bill Gates uh, and China, their one-child policy, right? I've heard is going to create a real crisis over there because. One of the things, China is a very patriarchal culture, very male-dominated. Mm-hmm. And so people are aborting are aborting their female children. And so they're going to have a surplus of, of men over there. And uh, it's just going to be, it's just going to be real, real bad. And I think, I think these, these alarmists on population control need to get a grip well, and, uh, and realize that people having children is not, is not, is not the cause of of the world's ills, it's because there's a few people, a few very powerful people who control so much wealth and manipulate uh, people all over the world to do what they want, and they cut and they start wars, and they they gen- they they trigger depressions, and they they treat people badly, and uh, what needs to be resisted are those folks, mm-hmm. and we need to stand with the regular people of the world. And stand against the, uh, the the masters of uh, wealth and power. So you think we should send some of Bill Gates' mosquitoes uh, inside some of their corporate offices to help sterilize them well, uh, instead of the common folk? <laughs> no, I don't think I don't think we need to use violence. Uh, 
which is, I guess, another thing I could I could speak on briefly is that uh, for a while, you know, I was raised much like you were, Doctor Future. I was. Uh, Portland is a very conservative. Portland Christian School is a very conservative place. Churches I attended were very conservative, and I kind of and since I was thought of myself as a patriot, I thought that uh, you know every now and again it's perfectly acceptable for people to pick up arms and defend themselves and and kill people to get to to to, to obtain our objectives. But I have, my opinion on that has changed in part because of my study of history and my study of false flag terrorism, which your your buddy Tom Bionic has done such great work on. Have you heard that, Tom? False flag terror. What? (laughs) (laughs) Preposterous. We only know know only bad people. Lone wolves do terrorism. Exactly. Exactly. Just like that guy in Norway. You had that very sophisticated bomb that... Who got 6,000 pounds of fertilizer up to the second floor in under an hour. Right. But he had to be what? acting alone. But, but you know what's <laughs> happened from that to change this subject here? What what uh, what happened is exactly what I thought was going to happen. They just announced today because of that bomb. You know, it has a lot of foreshadowing of um, Oklahoma City bombing, the whole, the whole yeah. scenario here. But that um, what they are now doing here in the States is putting further restrictions on getting uh, was it potassium nitrate. And the poor individual mm. farmers here are complaining that it's going to make them even harder for them to do things on their local farms with these additional restrictions. But yeah. I wouldn't put it past Monsanto and some of these other comp- comp- companies to at least, you know, generally support this kind of stuff and have stuff set yeah. up, you know, to tighten the screws even further on them. But, but you know, one thing that I've gathered from just sort of rubbing shoulders with you and not really sitting down and talking with you, and I know you, your, your, your influence from Wendell Berry is, is very pronounced, but that it's more than just a practicality, like, uh, you know, in terms of uh, an immediate need and, and just logistically we need to live more simpler rural lifestyle, but there's almost a sacredness, sacredness to it that affects our sense of community who who we consider we are, our self-worth, self-perception. Can you comment a little bit about that, Ben, about what has happened to us beyond our prosperity, but just as a, as a society, getting away from the rural lifestyle and what we could get back if we went back into that? Well, I, I'll, I'll answer your question by giving your listeners uh, some history here. And I was actually thinking about this today uh, while I was... While I was working, I, the the United States economy really totally changed after World War II. And Wendell Berry writes about this pretty extensively in his essays and in his novels. And, and that is, you know, the, the United States government essentially socialized the country during World War II. World War II provided the perfect opportunity for uh, President Roosevelt and uh, his his. Uh, his administration to impose the kinds of controls on the economy that they were unsuccessful in getting during the depression. And one of the things that happens is that corporations, big corporations like General Motors uh, and certainly many others, became very closely associated with uh, the uh, the federal government, very involved in the war effort, very involved in producing uh, weapons and uh, tanks and airplanes and that kind of thing. And that, that, that influence 
that connection between corporations, big big business, and big government has remained ever since. And the very same government scientists, or government-supported scientists who were developing chemical weapons during World War II turned their attention to developing pesticides and fertilizers following the war, and they sold these to the farmers. And during the 1950s, the Secretary of Agriculture, Mr. Earl Butts, uh, said the famous line, get big or get out, that uh, farmers had to either embrace this new technology, this new way of doing things, it was very different from the traditional way, or they had to give up. And what happened was is that a lot of people, millions of people, moved out of the rural areas and into the industrial areas of our country between about 1945 in 1970, about a 25-year period, we went from having about a quarter of the population living on farms to about 2%. Wow. And I think, I think now yep. it's about 1%. Yep. <laughs> so we've had this massive migration, and one of the consequences of that is that unlike during the Depression, which was the last time we really faced serious hard times, and I think we're kind of headed in that direction again now, one of the things that helped people out during the Depression is that everybody knew at least somebody had a friend or a family member who still lived in the country so that if times got hard, people could move in with this person and take care of themselves without having to depend on a government safety net. And so people were able to survive, even though during the 1930s, the government was relatively small compared to what it is today. But now, because we've forced everybody to move off the farm because we've made it economically impossible for people to pay their bills and sustain themselves by having small farms using traditional methods rather than the uh, chemical pesticides and fertilizers. Uh, Forcing all these people to move into the cities, we've taken away people's economic independence, which means that all of us, whether we like to think of it or not, all of us are dependent on this big government, big business consort uh, cartel or cabal that runs the country. And so one of the things that I find ironic is when people start, you know, picking on welfare recipients and uh, saying how they're draining the resources of the country away and yet not recognize that all of us, to to one extent or another, are welfare recipients because we can, we most of us, myself included, can't do anything for ourselves. We have to depend on some corporation or some government agency, some utility company to provide it for us. You know, we uh, we get our electricity from somewhere else, we get our gas from somewhere else, we get water from somewhere else, we get uh, our waste is taken care of by somebody else. Uh, and this is a defi- this is a definition of slavery, is it not? Because we really, yes. our well-being is at the whims of other people that we don't know. Yes, exactly. And this is this is where I have pretty serious disagreements with some of the people in the libertarian and Tea Party circles. You know, I'm I'm sympathetic to the idea of making the government smaller. I'm definitely in favor of that. But what I'm against is this idea that they seem to have that uh, somehow if we just cut loose all the government supports and let people just just make it on their own that that, that would be a really 
swell thing, but the, the answer is it's not that it's not that easy because now that we're all dependent, you can't dismantle the system without hurting people now. So I think uh, well, one one thing you could do is if the church <laughs> could actually people like us right here talking right could decide we will take on that caretaker responsibility and we will reduce our personal lifestyle to take that on, we could eventually wean people off of a system where they could actually even be free. When they have when they have needs, they could have more than one choice in the government to go get their needs met. And, and actually exactly. have, you know, you, not yeah. only material needs, but spiritual needs, everything else met as well, too, and do it at a place that, that's the right fit for them. So, so, you know, this is like, Ben, when I keep thinking about all these problems we talk about on Future Quake, when I follow it to its conclusion, I end up looking in the mirror and recognize right. that, the, that the problem is not the corrupt politicians. The corrupt politicians are reflective of us as our society. Uh, we, we elect them. we got to look in the mirror and say that this problem begins and ends with me. And exactly. unless I take action and unless I get with my brethren, and the church is a big enough institution and is supposed to be selfless in its nature, where they could have a long-term vision if they really embodied New Testament belief to begin to solve these kind of problems. I remember our pastor at our church told me one time that somebody studied, and in fact, if everyone who said they were a practicing Christian in America would just tithe, just do their 10%, that there was enough money that no one in the entire world would be hungry. Everyone would be fed, and even like something like have health care. Really? For 10%. Really, I so, that very interesting. I've heard that statistic before, and I've. But thank you for bringing it up again. I've, uh, I think that's very interesting. Uh, but the, one of the problems, and uh, I'm sure you were just about to mention this, but I'll go ahead and let the cat out of the bag, is that in many of our churches, we have, and I say this as a person who wants to go into civil engineering, so I might be undercutting myself a little bit here. <laughs> in our churches, where there's too much obsession with building with with buildings i think and 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 generally when people do start giving that money is generally used to you know uh build uh more space uh for uh for church for church people to gather in you know once or twice a week mm-hmm. rather than do things like help missionaries overseas for the gospel or you know help people in need and, 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 you know, I, I don't like to bring that up because it makes me sound like a, like a malcontent and a, and somebody who just won't get along, you know. So I, as a general rule, I don't like to bring it up in conversations with people because I don't want to sound like I'm ungrateful. But at the same time, just in the back of my mind, my thought is the attitude change that needs to happen in so many of our churches is, is really, it would be a huge shift for most of our churches to really think in terms of the ways that you're that you're saying that we that the church needs to be dedicated to helping people out with uh, things like healthcare or agriculture or uh, even sustainable energy, you know, the, the idea that the church should dedicate its resources to that rather than you know maintaining and buildings and having a large paid staff and so forth that would that would really go against the grain in most churches, mm-hmm. and I think it would be unwelcome mm-hmm. in many churches. Ben, I'll, I'll mention this uh, 
might get me in trouble, but Mrs. <laughs> Mrs. Future and I actually left a church um, that was a major, major flagship inner city church. Um, it was, you know, wonderful teaching, great music, everything. Um, we found out they had spent a million and a half dollars renovating a doorway of the oh. church. <laughs> However, we were involved in a ministry to actually take uh, hand-me-down or clothes from Goodwill and get them to homeless people downtown. It's an inner-city church, so, you know, there's right. ample supply of people in need to provide them clothes so then they could go interview and get a job and get on their feet. Uh-huh. And we found that this uh, ministry was getting something like $500 spread over five years for this uh-huh. ministry. And even at that point, it was they wanted to shut it down because it looked bad to have homeless people, even chaperoned, inside the door of the church. Mm. That it would impact the ability to attract yuppies and others that were, were uh, you know, moving to, to apartments downtown and things. You know, mm. while they're spending a million and a half to renovate a doorway. Oh my I, I goodness! I can't. I can't picture. I mean, and, and I don't think that's completely. Atypical, atypical. I right. and, and I'm I, I'm I'm really scared to think about what the Lord will have to say to all of us later. And you know, the finger's going to be pointed at me too. You know, for what exactly. I've what I've tolerated and and how I still live because um, we have a lifestyle that's not defensible by any stretch of the Bible. Right. And but 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 the thing I was asking you about, and, and this gets back a little bit, I think, to something Wendell Berry touches on, and others you know better than me, is that it's more than just an expediency because of shortages of materials and things. But exactly. in terms of in your soul, the yeah. so, the solitude of of living in a rural environment like that, having a family farm, the ability to think things through, to have time in quiet where you don't have right. noise pollution, and even the things like for example, uh, sons working on a farm with their father, where exactly. they watch their father solve problems, be yeah. a be a problem solver. They're around all day. They know where they are. Whereas, you know, I was raised like uh, most people in a generation where your father was almost a stranger. He left for almost the entire day until late at night. He didn't. You don't know what he did. You know, thank goodness yeah. I had a father who did not have a job where he traveled. In fact, he turned down opportunities so he could be with us but for the most part we we disconnected and that affects our psyche in so many different ways disconnected unplugged we don't have a sure footing a foundation of who we are you know this connection to the earth so there's there there is something that just goes right down to our fundamental nature of who we are isn't it but by not being able to have this balanced lifestyle That is exactly right and I'm, I apologize I've kind of been avoiding answering your question because I keep on getting tangled up in this other stuff explaining what happened after World War II and so forth but yes that what you're describing is the experience of most Americans post World War II kind of in this new industrial environment where 98% of us live some kind of an urban existence and there are so few people who actually you know live on farms and even fewer people who live on farms that are traditional farms that, you know, where they grow most of their own stuff and, you know, try to be diversified as opposed to, you know, only focusing on one crop like uh, corn or soybeans, as is common today. Uh, but, the, but the loss of that, the loss of the con- meaningful connection to real things that, 
and, and the loss of uh, individual independence and self-reliance uh, has resulted in, I think, family disconnect, as you've pointed out, where we feel like we don't know our parents that well because they have to be out of the home. And nowadays, you know, it used to be that mom could stay home. Now that's no longer true, thanks mm-hmm. to the uh, feminist movement, which was funded in part by the uh, usual suspects, the, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> the world bankers. Mm-hmm. Uh, now women are working too. Uh, and so the average young person has very little access to either one of their parents. And as a result, many cases left to raise themselves, which leads to all kinds of problems and where we, where we have a very unrealistic idea of what life is like. And, uh, in part, <clears throat> the ability to figure out things for yourself by encountering problems, you know, that you, that, that you encounter when you live in an agricultural environment, as you've described, or even if you're, if you're living in a, in, a, in the city and your and your father maybe owns a, a local business or something, a local grocery store, which are also very rare these days, thanks to uh you know, places like Walmart and and that kind of thing. Uh where you could where people would have the opportunity to learn how to run a business for themselves or run a farm or work on cars or some or any, or anything like that. Those opportunities are much less now because the wealth is no longer spread out like it used to be, where people, you know, had some kind of control over their circumstances. Now everybody's an employee of somebody else, and so there's less responsibility. There's less of an opportunity to really get a chance to work for yourself and solve problems mm-hmm. for yourself, and that that causes a mentality of dependence, you know where it's always somebody else's responsibility to fix this or mm-hmm. throw this or slaughter this and slaughter, you know, dinner tonight or whatever. And so people, and that, that that causes insecurity. You know, people are insecure about who they are, if they can, if they really have what it takes. I know that I've gone through, gone through that. Uh, I think in many ways my generation is going through that right now where, mm-hmm. uh, People feel insecure about their identity, and and they uh, they hold back from doing the things that you know people have normally done in the past, like get married and have children, because they feel like you know I I don't really know what I'm doing, so I need to pull back. Yeah. Um, have I answered your question in any, any yeah. kind of satisfactory way? Yeah, but you know <laughs> it it just affects us in so many social ways. For example. I, I would submit that we are really subject because of, again, living in large concentrations of people and all getting the same media, you know, with the exceptions of podcasts like, like this one's and others that are customized. Yeah. For the most part, we're, we're dosing on the same mass media since the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And so it, it tends toward mob psychology. And it's even yeah. happening in the church. And, and yeah. I'll, I'll give you a case in point of, I'll, I'll just pick out a boogeyman, okay? Like, I, we, we mentioned the whole Muslim Sharia law thing, okay? Uh-huh. That, that has become a feeding frenzy where every well-paid spokesperson goes and tours at some church or is the quote expert on the 24-hour news that will try to outdo the other in doing some other kind of scare tactic 
much like they did the communists just before them, and they will raise the bar with some other new anxiety or fear. And that talk goes back and forth in groups. And again, these are people who we've never met. Most people have never met a Muslim. They don't know. They couldn't pick them out of a crowd. But it just keeps a fever and fever pitch higher and higher and higher and less and less rational. Whereas if you take individuals and you spread them out on a farm, okay, and you give them time to think and to think through stuff, and you send somebody from a different culture like a Muslim or a Jew or or some other you know race like this, and you introduce them one-on-one to somebody in the community, there's a much better chance that they're going to actually find these people to be individuals talking one-on-one. And and will show how foolish a lot of, and I don't mean to pick just on this issue, there's a lot of them. And and to be true, there, you know, there's certainly been racism and other crazy activities even in our past, in rural days and things. They've had other means for traveling snake oil salesmen or whoever, you know, to to scare and and to create mobs and things like that. But I think it attenuated a lot from spreading across, you know, the country or large areas. Because we were so decentralized. Yes. And, and I, th- I think the yeah. goal was that mass media would be able to stop some of that, that ignorance could be vanquished because we could have this mass media that would educate people to see, to not be afraid of these kind uh-huh. of things. And you can even see shows like The Twilight Zone and others that would have these <laughs> little morals about how uneducated man, you know, retreated back into their primal fears and with more education we'll know better. But it's not turned out that way. I think we've gotten worse in terms of yes. our mob thinking. And one of the ways that I would recommend people, one of the things I recommend that people try to do is try to be real conscious of the technology that you use and try to figure out a way to do, to make do with as little as you possibly can. Um, one thing, I'll, I'll just, one crazy example that I'll give you, and I, I'm not very good at this, I have to admit. One thing that I did a couple summers ago is I went out, I went to an antique store, so I enjoy shopping in, in antique stores in part for this reason, and I just bought uh, an old-timey washboard, like they, like sometimes you see them using Westkins. Yeah. When they're washing clothes in the creek and stuff. I just, and I bought it just to buy, just, just to have it, just in case, you know, I ever wanted to figure out how to wash clothes without using a washing machine. Mm-hmm. I haven't gained the courage or the, the of my convictions to actually do that yet, I have to admit. But I figure if I ever do, it's there and I can use it if I need it. Mm-hmm. Now, at first glance, you know, me doing something like that or even thinking that seems totally crazy. But if you start thinking along these lines long enough, you start finding yourself coming to surprising conclusions. Uh, one thing that I've been doing for the last, well, this is my third year doing this, so I've planted a small garden in my backyard, and I've tried to use, you know, as little uh, advanced technological input as possible. Uh, I don't use pesticides or artificial fertilizers. Uh, so we have a small, uh, compost heap in the woods behind my house that I use, and I've used other methods to try to, uh, to try to improve my soil. And my soil was pretty poor the first two years I did it, 
but this year I've been starting to see some pretty good results. And uh, one thing that I would caution people about is that you can get real, real romantic notion of, about these things and think, mm-hmm. oh, you know, I'm going to move out to the country and I'm going to do this <laughs> and I'm going to do that. Well, it, it ain't that. It probably isn't going to be that way for you. Uh, most of us have been born and bred in the city, and that's probably where most of us are going to remain. Uh, it's just very, very difficult for people to totally change their outlook. And the kind of work that needs to be done, uh, rebuilding soil and learning how to do these things is going to take time. It's slow work. It requires a lot of patience. And it, it, it's not going to be solved overnight. You know, we need to, one thing that Linda Berry says, and I certainly agree, Americans need to stop thinking in terms of big solutions. This is one of the things that annoys me about President Obama and his very idealistic statements that he makes and he has made ever since he became president. And he'll talk about we need to do this. We need to spend a few billion on this, a few billion on that. And it bugs me because the man seems to be incapable of thinking in terms of small solutions. It's always about the big solution. And it's not just him. It's, it's pretty much every president that's come before him that he's not done anything to help mm-hmm. the situation. <clears throat> Where, you know, every every solution, every problem has got to gotta be some big solution that the corporations have to be involved in and the government has to be involved in. But the idea of of people just working together themselves to solve these problems just never seems to enter anybody's mind. Well, how can you give any accolades if it's a small solution? Yeah, that's, How is history going to remember you if, <laughs> if you actually decentralize and make the local people the heroes rather than yourself at the top? You, you know, all the awards they give for the wonderful things where they spend our money and redistribute our money for other things, and then they're awarded for their great foresight, you know, and that, oh, yeah. and that kind of activity. Uh, it, 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 w- would you agree that probably would be better spending a little bit more time in the garden than on Facebook? Would you would yeah. you to learn more about God? Yeah. And uh, I I uh, I was out of Facebook for a while, and then I somebody persuaded me to come back, and I. Uh, I don't think I really got anything useful accomplished. And then one day I just decided, you know what, this is just useless, and I just I, yeah. I got rid of it for good. Yeah. And I haven't missed it at all. So yeah. I would definitely recommend people get rid of their Facebooks because not only do I think that not only is Facebook a waste of time, uh, but I also think it's probably being used to spy on us. To yeah. be perfectly honest, and, Prob- I, and I think I'm probably. safe in saying that on a show like Future Play. Yeah, yeah without, <laughs> without question, I would say. Yeah, yeah, you don't have to suspend our belief too much for that one. Yeah. Um, in the last, say, 20 minutes or so of our show, I want to focus on the future and on your generation. Can okay. You, I, I, and there's two things, and remember our, our shortage of time here, but I, I, want, I want you to first talk about what do you think is going to happen in terms of your generation as far as tangible things like jobs, you know, economic pressures, the marriage effects. And, and, and then the second thing I want to ask you about is the spiritual direction you see your generation going. So could you start and tell us a little bit about what they're going to encounter by, by way of their, uh, their social life, economic life, that kind of thing? Well, I think that the days of high unemployment are here to stay, sorry to say. And... I think that one of the reasons I've already mentioned this, I think one of the factors driving it is scarcity of energy. 
the fact that if you don't produce enough energy, you really can't grow the economy. So this means that the entire paradigm of growth, growth, growth can't happen, which means there's going to be a scarcity of jobs, scarcity of scarcity of just about everything. And people are just going to have to, it's not necessarily that you won't have a job, it's just that it won't be secure and you may have to work more than one in order to make it. Nonetheless, having said that, and having said a lot of other alarming things this broadcast about, you know, our government's involvement in 9-11 and the cover-up of, of that sort of thing, I, my encourage, I, I'm going to offer a, a contradictory word here that may seem to contradict some of the things that I've been saying, because I really am an optimist at heart in spite of some of the things that I've said tonight. And that is, I believe, even though it seems to be clear that our government has involved us in a war to get resources that we're running out of because we're on the brink of an economic collapse, even though all, the, all of that is true, and even though there are people in our government who are absolutely evil, it's really not as bad as you think. And I would encourage people to not worry about it a whole lot. I think it will work itself out. Uh, there's really nothing you can do about it anyway. And one of the things I would encourage people to do is just continue to live your life. If you want to get married, get married. If you want to have kids, have kids. If you're pursuing, if you're pursuing a career path like engineering or nursing or accounting or, you know, being a mechanic or being a hairdresser, whatever you want to do, pursue that. You know, don't, don't cower away in fear because the sky, because you think the sky is falling. Because you never know, you never know if, 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 if the crisis is going to happen tomorrow or if it might happen 15 years from now. And if you live, if it, if it doesn't happen until 15 years from now and you spend all that time living in mm -hmm. fear and trying to hide out and stock up on weapons and stock up on food and being, uh, being a survivalist or something like that, then you've missed out on all this all this time that you could have been, you know, enjoying your life. So I'm, you know, I'm not here to sell fear. I'm, I'm here to tell people to just live your life, uh, take the necessary precautions, uh, learn how to learn how to garden, learn how to do more things for yourself. Uh, be prepared. Don't 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 set your expectations too high. Don't let the world set your expectations. Mm -hmm. I think my generation is guilty of allowing the world to set our expectations, especially in the mm -hmm. church, mm -hmm. where we think that just because we, we're going to go to school and we're going to do this and we're going to do that, we're going to make mm -hmm. all this money and we're going to have the house with the white picket fence and the 2.3 kids and all this kind of stuff. And I, I would encourage people to give that up. You know, if it was ever realistic before, it's really not very realistic now. Uh, mm -hmm. I think people are just going to have to deal with lowered expectations just lower your expectations in terms of monetary wealth or monetary gain and just uh, learn to find satisfaction in things that are not monetary, mm -hmm. like uh, your family, uh, mm -hmm. finding a genuine group of Christians to grow with, uh, nature, you know, because the pleasures of nature are free, as Wendell Berry has pointed out in many of his poems. Mm -hmm. You can... You can walk into the woods and sit on a log and just listen and observe, and you don't have to pay anything for that, you know? And then you can experience God's wonder in nature 
at no at no at no additional charge. Uh, another thing I would recommend that in addition to learning how to do things, practical things for yourself, uh, maybe learning how to work on uh, learning how to fix things, learning how to fix your car, for instance, learning how to uh, learning how to garden, learning how to uh, do little spot repairs around the house and so forth. In addition to that, I would recommend uh, learning how to amuse yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, possibly maybe taking up music or taking up a hobby of some sort mm-hmm. that would allow you... Uh, there are many hobbies that are available that people have traditionally used to amuse themselves. Uh, like, that little, like that little ball <laughs> thing. You know, the little paddle ball? That's what came right. to mind. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but you, you, you know, there's so many things I could say on this, Ben, because yeah. one of the time bombs in our society is that we bought into this whole thing about somebody out there is supposed to entertain us and make yeah. us fulfilled and happy, and it has a lot of dimensions. One is, if I can have the latest fashions, I will be happy, or if I have the latest status symbol. The other thing is is that Hollywood or somebody's going to figure out a new fix you know, over the last CGI thing I saw to somehow Reminds me that push Lewis it farther, too. you know, yeah. One of the new drug. drug. Yeah. One that won't make me blah, blah, blah. Right. I, I know. I know what you're saying. <laughs> but, I mean, you know, th- th- this this is a dead end. When you keep going and yeah. you keep, and that's where Rome was. You know, Rome got their bread and circuses handed to them. And so yeah. their circuses led them to the Colosseum and, and people putting each other to death because yeah. that's how high a fix that they needed because somebody was supposed to, you know, keep them interested. And, and the Bible very clearly teaches us about make use of your hands, live quiet, peaceable lives, take yeah. joy in the fruits of your labor. I mean, that is all over the Bible as a sustainable life. And, and well, the, the, the preacher the, says there's nothing new under the sun. Yeah. You know, and the, he looked at everything. And he said yeah. that was the thing to do to find your contentment in. And if I could just make a full circle here, this is where we get back to sacramental worship, because one of the things that uh, concerns me about pockets of the evangelical church, especially the pockets that I'm most familiar with, is that we have become so used to being this this idea that the church service is there for our entertainment. And we've gotten used to spending, many churches spend thousands of dollars on equipment, and media and so forth to impress people and so on. And I think one thing, if we head into this period of decline and scarcity, which I think will be very positive in many ways. I mean, if if you're out there looking for a lot of money, it's not going to be good for you. But if you're mm-hmm. if you want to if you're looking for a good to live a good life, I think the next few years are going to be uh, abounding with opportunities. Um, but I think churches need to learn how to downsize a little bit in the worship department and learn to allow more people in the congregation to really participate. It really bothers me. I've I've talked about this a little bit before for the people that I know. It, it bothers me to see the decline of congregational singing in many churches where you hardly hear the congregation at all. It's, it's everybody up front. Which is kind of an unusual inversion because yeah, you're just an old fogey, you know that. <laughs> I'm sorry. You're just an old fogey. Yeah, I know. That's I so know. out of date. <laughs> you can't know, be 23. But... You must be like 63. <laughs> yeah. Well, see, the the Protestant Reformation 
was all about uh, people. One of the key doctrines was the priesthood of all believers, this idea that yeah. it wasn't just the monks and the nuns and the priests who got to be Christians. Everybody gets to be Christians here. And this idea that it's just the people up front who get to do anything, and we've all got to just sit in, in odd silence, you know, while the priest talks to us in Latin, a language we can't even understand. The, you know, the, the Reform- our roots as Christians are about us participating in worship and us sharing equally in the work of the church. And to see this kind of reversion where the congregation is hardly being involved at all bugs me a lot. I think we need to have less technological sophistication and just more more of an appreciation for ordinary, you know, acts of worship and uh, just regular, just provide more opportunities for regular people who may not be the best singers in the world, may not mm. like the spotlight. Just gives those people more opportunities to really participate mm. in uh, the worship of the church. Well, I think a lot of this goes with the affluence culture, uh, Ben, because we are used to paying somebody to do our stuff for us in every part of our life, and that includes our worship for us. We pay for people to entertain us. We pay the government to take care of poor people rather than us getting involved in their life. We, You know, at least those of us who pay taxes, we, we pay that off to be dealt with. So we we send money, and since we have money, that's one thing we got to float around to do that. Just like our CIA takes our money and hands it to everybody in the in the country of Afghanistan, <laughs> that we yeah. did great diplomacy. You know, we did all these wonders, and all we did was pass around taxpayer dollars, and they're all having a laugh on our behalf. So that's our mentality in our country, and our worship reflects it. We we pay professionals to go do the stuff at most churches, or a lot of them these days. But getting into this religious thing in the last ten minutes or so here, can you talk a little bit about how you think the church experience and even the nature of the church itself is going to change in your generation? Um, I think that my impression, and this is just anecdotal, my impression is that my generation tends to be more liberal on many subjects than our parents were. This is not necessarily bad. Um, I think that... uh, I think that there is going to be more acceptance of uh, of uh, homosexuals in the church as, yeah. as the years progress. I, more more of a, when I say acceptance, I guess I could really be talking about two things. One is is a healthy understanding of the struggles that gay people suffer, instead of just you know blanket condemnation more of an understanding attitude, which I think is needed. But uh, the other extreme of it is I think we're going to see more uh, more comfort with this, with the idea that, uh, that that homosexual relationships are equal and are, are the same as heterosexual relationships and that it's o- even okay to allow um, homosexual people to enter the ministry, which... I would disagree with, to be perfectly honest. I know that makes me a pariah, but it's it's a view that I hold. Um, and uh, when it comes to these attitudes, I think... Well, by the way, Ben, yeah. I know how you feel. You, you've probably alienated both half of our audience with your answer yeah. there, because <laughs> on one side, 
you you were a milk toast that says that sometimes gay people have a struggle that we should should have a little bit of sympathy with to help yeah. on the struggle, and that's going to alienate a lot of people. And on the other side, you know, you're talking about really admitting that it's really not what God God's desires or plan that He's pleased with, and we shouldn't yeah. set it up as a is something that is to be celebrated, and that will upset another set of people. So yeah, you you, you can't win in these kind of things. I tell you, from no, my you just can't you just can't, you just can't care. Can. You, you know, you, you just can't care, and you just go on from there. But 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 regardless of what your personal beliefs are, you're saying it's going to happen. I, that yeah. It, it's handwriting's on the wall, basically. Yes. The church, the evangelical church, has been very intent on fighting the culture war and, you know, beating these things back. But it is, I think that the, I think that it's pretty clear that we have failed. Um mm-hmm. Because the attitudes are shifting in the direction that they are, and I don't think much can be done to reverse it. And I'm afraid that the root of it is the kind of cultural breakdown that you and I were discussing earlier, that when people have poor relationships with their parents, poor relationships with the land, they have, they don't, they're not able to take care of themselves. They don't know how to fix anything. They don't know how to provide anything for themselves. And this creates unhealthy people who are more inclined to... Uh, uh, homosexuality or um, you know other drug use alcoholism um, unsustainable behavior unsustainable behavior of all kinds yeah, yeah. exactly yeah. <laughs> and, and you know what's interesting is that what you're talking about the, the, the self-sufficient kind of live off the lake kind of thing on one half it gives a very positive self-esteem support but yet it it really doesn't necessarily get into the arrogant egotism because when when you're a farmer you know you still depend on God you right. you cannot make it rain you cannot make the crops come up out of the ground so yeah. so while you have a you have a rightful kind of um standing a proper understanding of your significance and not a self-loathing mm-hmm. you also recognize you're totally at the mercy of God at the same time Exactly, and and I think one of the reasons why atheism is is thriving as it is at the moment, and agnosticism as well, is the, the reason I think it is, is it, thriving like it is, is uh, because we are so urban, and people do not experience nature in a one on a one on one way that they used to, and so it's easier for people to deny God's existence when they don't see Him, uh, see Him revealed in nature. And it, it makes it easier for you to be an atheist if you actually had to encounter the the natural world on a daily basis. I think it'd be much more difficult for you to deny God's yeah. existence. <laughs> well, then in Romans but, chapter one, doesn't it talk about how man sees God's nature in the subway or uh, when he's using no. power tools? Is that what it was? No, it talks about the natural world. It's, oh, okay. <laughs> So that's where we see God's beauty, not in the things that man makes. Um, any last thoughts? I, uh, we're going to uh, take a break in this until maybe your next visit uh, here and get on some other stuff just to cleanse the palate. But um, anything else that you w- would like to impress upon our listeners about what what your generation is expecting to see in the future and any suggestions you have for them? Well, I would, I would encourage... 
people, I, I don't know what the average age is of the Future Quake audience, but uh, I would encourage, if you are, if you are a, an, an older person, I would encourage you to uh, to reach out, maybe some young people in your church or maybe young people that you know, and be willing to uh, uh, develop relationships with them because one of the things I think is unhealthy is that people tend to hang out with only other people who are their age mm-hmm. these days. And I think we need to have more cross-cultural contact there so mm-hmm. that certain things that have been preserved can continue to be preserved and not forgotten so that, you know, humanity can survive. I mean, that's what's, mm-hmm. on, the, that's what's on the line. If mm-hmm. you don't preserve the memories and the traditions, then how are people going to make it, you right. know, after you go? So, right. and, and for people my age, I would encourage them to be very intentional about raising your children and not and don't allow career aspirations or the dreams of glory or the dreams of money or whatever it is get in the way of really spending time with your children and raising them well and taking the time to show them how to do things and mm-hmm. show them how to live rightly. Mm-hmm. You mean like how to use the Wii player and the Nintendo? Is that what you meant? Excuse me? How to use, like, the Nintendo and the uh, Game uh, Boy? Not, no, that, that's not really Okay. That's not really what I mean. I, I would actually encourage as little use of those things as possible, although okay. they can be good in some ways. So maybe step uh, out of virtual reality for a few minutes and live real reality <laughs> for a little while? No, virtual reality tends to uh, tends to separate people from the... From the real, from 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 the real consequences of their actions, and we yeah. we end up raising a generation that's okay with being put into in the control rooms at the CIA to bomb presidents yeah. in Pakistan. Right. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. You see big explosions going on, and you, you don't end up meeting people like that. And you don't. They don't show on those little pictures the funerals, do they? No, the they don't show. Doing. They don't show what happens when uh, when a, when a child, you know. Gets hit by a, by well, what happens when, when a whole family is is killed by a bomb, you know the severed body parts, the yeah. it's just the gory details. Mm-hmm. They don't show that on the news. Yeah, the breadwinners <laughs> that die, and then the families that go into poverty and can't eat because their father's dead, that kind of stuff. But you know, I have yeah. one last question for you, and it's really the most dire and urgent one for us. Okay. Um, my my biggest problem about the future is. What does needs to change in Tom Bionic for the future? What do we need to do with him <laughs> for a more sustainable? I can give you tons of well, tons of answers I to that. <laughs> you want to start? I can answer that question for you. <laughs> well, no, we, we we need an expert here. Uh, well, I don't know Tom very well, but I know that he's been looking for a for a lady friend here. For kind of what I gathered from the last show that I listened to. Jeez, now and, it's become uh, public knowledge. It's been like mine. <laughs> uh, we put we put a call out not long ago. Great, you know? yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm afraid I don't have much help for him in that department because uh, uh, it's been it's been difficult on my end too. Yeah. Yeah. All I could say. Well, I'll tell you one thing for you bachelor guys is that yeah. and this goes for bachelorettes too that are listening. Okay, all single people listening, that the challenging lifestyle changes that you're talking about. The, t- the the best time to try them is when you're single, 
because whether you're a man or a woman, a husband or a wife, it is very hard when you buy into that sometimes to get your spouse to buy in. It's the rare exception, and sometimes that is the biggest impediment uh, is that a lot of times you don't have two, you know, two spouses that are on the same page on that. So that's one of the blessings of singlehood is that you, you still have the authority to go on the whim of your convictions. Yeah, that is a very good point, Dr. Future. I'm glad you made that. And, I'm very uh, glad you made that. But in many ways, in many ways, having somebody else to check you and and prevent you from making big mistakes, because many times you are not a very good judge of whether or not something will work or not, mm-hmm. or if something is healthy or not. And it can be very helpful to have somebody else to help you along. But uh, but, 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 but I think the point that you're making is also good. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, how can uh, how can our listeners um, get to your blog? I, I think your blog is fascinating. It you know as much as we push the edge here on Future Quake, <laughs> you will take you're, several more. We're looking more. out, and there's like a big gap, and he's over on the other side. Yeah, it's it a big, like, big chasm <laughs> I see there. A body over there. Yeah. It must be Ben. On well, the I've even heard Robert Hyde say, "Yeah, that's too far out for me. I can't accept <laughs> that." Actually, I, that's I can't believe that. I, <laughs> you know, it's funny about Robert. You know, I, my experience with Robert is similar to yours, Doctor Future, and that is there have been times when Robert will say something, and I will think, "Has the old man finally lost it?" You know, <laughs> uh, and I think that's just totally yeah out there. I don't think I can go there. And then and then you wait a few years and you figure out, oh, he, he's exactly right. Well, yeah. well, it's <laughs> been a while since he's been on this show. Hopefully, we can shame him. To coming back, but what what is the name of your blog, and how can our listeners get to it? Well, it's just my name, Ben Carmack, lowercase letters. B. It's it's www. b n c a r m a c k. blogspot. com, and uh, I don't really like to publicize it that much. Uh, well, it's too late. I don't want to. Yeah, <laughs> I don't want to seem like I'm, you know trying to promote myself too overtly. It's, but, it's mostly but you do there. Lo- you love love offerings, right? And money <laughs> trees and faith pledges. Oh, I sure. Know, I know that's what you're in it for. Yeah. Uh, Is no, the collection not. plate. <laughs> uh, if I was in it for the money, I would have quit a long time ago, that's for sure. Yeah. But uh, I, uh, it's, it's there because the world irritates me, and when it irritates me, I feel the need to write. <laughs> So I think that's what Bill Buckley said, and yeah. uh, that's kind of how I feel. <laughs> well, I recommend everybody go over there because one of the best things about it is that you get to hear further wisdom of Ben Carmack on so many other topics without the irritation of Dr. Future <laughs> interrupting him. So he's unleashed, and so I highly recommend that to everybody. Um, I want to thank you so much for being here for your inaugural voyage here on Future Quake, and uh, I, ho- I hope it wasn't too painful an experience. Oh no! It was uh, it was a pleasure, and uh, I feel honored to have such an exalted position to say whatever it is I want to say. Well, many, many, yeah, many guests <laughs> say it's like a trip to the rendition camp. Their experience, but <laughs> hope it wasn't that bad, Ben. Well, uh, we may all be there soon. So. Well, yeah, it's a matter of time. We figure. <laughs> hey, we're going to extend a very, very special uh, offer to you. That we don't really do to anybody else, okay? This is okay. your you're in rarefied air here. Um, we're we're going to just cover maybe a story or two and and some emails, and want to know okay. if you could hang with us if your schedule permits to 
sort of sort of stand there in the gallery and give us well, your two cents I've on yacked, pontificate. I've yacked, I've yacked longer than I thought I would, so I don't see why not. Okay. Well, we appreciate it. We want you okay. to hang, hang with us here. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to switch gears a little bit. We hope you enjoy Ben Carmack, who's been with us. This is our first introduction with him. We had a lot more to talk about, but what's new? Uh, we, we, we hit a whole bunch of different topics. I want you all to check out his blog. But in the meantime, I want to talk to Brother Tom over here about a story he's got. But let me just do a little quick commercial message here. Uh, and, and this is something that our friend Andrew Hoffman got us sort of going on. I think it's a good idea. I want to thank um, Sister Catherine for another donation to the Future Quake show this week, and I really appreciate that so much. It met an immediate need for something that we needed to get for research for our show. Uh, and I also want to thank um, Brother George and also two people at the uh, at the uh, Branson Conference, uh, the Future Congress, who bought two two additional sets, book sets, and we still have those book sets. Um, it's an it's an original Future Quake uh, box set. It has Lies the Government Told You by Judge Andrew Napolitano, and it also has um, uh, the New World Order and the Eugenics Wars by Andrew Hoffman. Those two books, if you can get them to somebody you know. They will understand 95% of what we talk about in Future Quake. I don't know if they mentioned the Nephilim, do they, Tom? Do you remember that? But just about everything else. I think we got Rockefeller yeah. in there. We could write Nephilim in the inside jacket or something. Yeah, just to make it complete. But you'll yeah. understand 95% of what's going on in, in Future Quake World. So I want to thank George for him getting that uh, two-book set and also uh, the ones that were at the conference. And if you go to the front of futurequake.com, there's always a lot of information there, links, places for you to go. There's even a CD from uh, our brother Tom over here mm -hmm. that's uh, got some music uh, that you'll like, and we get a lot of compliments about it. And uh, just another quick announcement, too. Uh, it looks like I, I hate to jump the gun on these people, but I'm sort of excited about it. It looks like we're going to have the new African-based Future Quake rollout officially the 1st of September. Future Quake spinoff, yeah. Yeah, and uh, we've got our bum, Futurians. Bum, bum. Bum, bum, bum. Was that like 18? Yes. Okay. Uh, we've we've got uh, uh, Sister Audra and Brother Dion are going to be uh, running this. I've listened to the first few episodes, and they're fascinating. Uh, they even bring up uh, Longshoreman Johnny, which makes it sort of official. Uh, so they've really got everything there. So want to get everybody ready to be uh, listening to that and add that to their uh, blog list or their uh, podcast list. Um, Tom. Any comments, things you want to talk about, or do you want to jump into a story real quick? Uh, I want to. I, I actually want to get what Ben Carmack's phone number, call him, and uh, talk with him at some later point. But that uh, will have to happen after we turn the mics off. Are you Are you going to like just berate him terribly? Yeah, I'm going to scream at him. Okay. And, unless I get that caller, that weird caller ID that we got. See, I didn't think about. It. You're still there, Ben, aren't you? Uh, yeah, I'm still here. Yeah. yeah, that makes it sort of awkward when we make fun of the guest after the interview when he's still on. <laughs> yeah, no, no. Uh, oh, not gosh, he's still here? Shoot. I hope it's not too hate painful. When that happens. Uh, no, seriously, what, what do you want to lay on us, brother? Because i got some stuff to share, too. You, so. wanna, you want me to do this? Here, I, got, uh, I don't have any announcement, but I do have an interesting thing. It's not even really a story that I came across, but it's an interesting thing that well, I came across. Well, lay the thing on us, then. It's uh, the Global Anti-Semitism Review Act of 2004. Right. Uh, oh boy. Yeah. Uh, it's. Uh, and let me I sort hope of, we don't offend you with this. Yeah, let me bit. sort of. Re well, I'm sort of. I'm sort of stymied as to really what to think about all of this. Uh, it's an act uh, 
And I'm reading here from the... Uh, by Congress? Yeah, by Congress. The GPO.gov site, which is, it's like, it's, it's certified by the Superintendent of Documents uh, of the United States Government Printing Office. Uh, it says, an act to require a report on acts of anti-Semitism around the world, be it enacted by the Senate and House of Representatives of the United States of America and Congress assembled. This act may be cited as the Global Anti-Semitism Review Act of 2004. Um... It, and then it lists a bunch of uh, things, a bunch of anti-Semitic acts that happened in 2003 and four. Our and government is specifically tasked with following anti-Semitic statements. Yeah, and then it this says... This is not the Southern Poverty Law Center. No, no, this is other, the government. Yeah, and, uh, and it ADL says, or something like that. In Section okay. 3 here, it is the sense of Congress that the United States government should continue to strongly support efforts to combat anti-Semitism worldwide through bilateral relationships and to interact with... International organizations such as the OSCE, the European Union, the United States, the United Nations, and the Department of State should thoroughly document acts of anti-Semitism that occur around the world. And then it says, uh, the Secretary of State shall submit to the Committee on Foreign Relations of the Senate and the Committee of the International Relations of the House of Representatives a one-time report on acts of anti-Semitism around the world. Wait a second, Tom. We just lost our signal here. We're just getting sure. reconnected back. Sorry okay, to interrupt you mid-story. Can you start over again with uh, okay. what, what we're talking about? We, we understood it's the fact that it's, it's a, a government agency. It's that a, yeah, it's a government agency that appears to be monitoring and fighting anti-Semitism around the world. And they submit a once-yearly report uh, to the Foreign Relations Committee of the Senate and the Committee on International Re Relations in the House of Representatives. Um. So anyway, moving down here to Section 5, Authorization for Establishment of Office to Monitor and Combat Anti-Semitism. So the State, State, Department, the State Department Basic Authorities Act of 1956 is amended by adding, after Section 58, the following new section. Monitoring and Combating Anti-Semitism. Uh, so it establishes an office to monitor and combat anti-Semitism. Did you see on there when this was initiated? Uh, the act was in 2004. I don't know when the, the, okay. the office was to monitor and combat anti-Semitism. Okay. Uh, the head of office is a special envoy for monitoring and combating anti-Semitism. The head of office shall be the special envoy for monitoring and combating anti-Semitism. And the appointment to the head of the office, the secretary shall appoint the special envoy if... The secretary determines that such is appropriate. The secretary may appoint a special office from envoy from among officers and employees of the department. The secretary may also offer such offers, officer or employee to retain the position uh, held by such officer or employee prior to the appointment of such officer or employee to the position of special envoy under this paragraph. Hey, I, I'm getting lost in the legalese there that you're reading. Yeah, is there, is, there a, is there a list of... Of actual offenses that they're trying to track in this office? Uh, not in this document, but I have another document that, that sort of lays it out more robustly. But I don't want to go there just yet till I do a little bit more research on it. Because okay. if, you if you think you're getting lost in this legalese, okay. the other stuff I got is like, pursuant to the subpart B slash 9, anti-Semitic means blah, 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 C section 5-221. Well, oh, they actually bother to define it? <laughs> sort of. Well, Usually I'm, they don't define it. I'm not real sharp here, but... Um, yeah, right, with your no, PhD. I'm no, I'm not. But, <laughs> I've only um, got a PhD in mechanical engineering. I'm really kind of stupid. In the document that you have up, does yes. it say specifically 
Anything else further what it's meaning to do or what the well, actions are that they take? It, it, it seems that it has established a special office in the State Department to, uh, to monitor and combat anti-Semitism worldwide and uh, uh, present a once yearly report to the uh, House and uh, Senate, uh, res- their respective uh, foreign relations committees mm-hmm. uh, on anti-Semitism. And, uh, How do they combat it? Uh, well, that's open to open to you know sticks and bombs and I don't know. I mean, it's one thing to say <laughs> swords. That we're there to know. combat it, but there has to be a means to combat it. They play chess. I don't know. <laughs> Is that in the document? Chess fight. Yeah. yeah. Um. Yeah. The yeah. Yeah. So they no, it's not in the document, and um, they they say. Uh, let's see, incite the country during the preceding year. Um, and then it just ends, yeah. So, uh, anyway, anti-Semitism. We've got the anti-Semitism, um, Global Anti-Semitism Review Act of 2004, which establishes... Global Anti-Semitism Review Act of 2004. Yeah, which establishes a special envoy to sort of monitor and combat within the within the government anti-Semitism. Okay. Well, people can Google that too and do their own. Oh yeah, yeah. Attempt. If you if you type "Global Anti-Semitism Review Act," um, you'll you'll eventually at like the top uh-huh. two or three or four things is www.gpo.gov. Go to uh-huh. that thing. There'll be yeah. some stuff after yeah. that. But the gpo.gov is the uh, it's a certified by sup- the superintendent of documents of the yeah. United States government printing office. Yeah. So I mean it's the official official document right. digital. Well they'll Google that and they can find where it is. Why did it's you, interesting. Why did you bring that up? What was the significance you thought of of this? Well I'm doing some research on it, um, and in the other documents it seems that they they define anti-Semitism in some ways that are uh, a bit odd. But just the fact that there is a a special government office to combat and fight and monitor anti-Semitism when there's not a such a thing to do the same for, say, Christianity mm-hmm. or, uh, you know, Mohammedism or, mm-hmm. you know, Zoroastrianism. Yeah, Wicca. Wicca, whatever, yeah. you know, um, that somehow this, you know. It is sort of goes against that whole thing of separation of church and state, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's tough unless, to... Unless, it, how do they define... Semitism. Well, are they we looking go. at it religiously, or are they looking at it by some other kind? Yeah. Of trait? Well, and know. and if you get to get down to that, you know, you could say Semitic people aren't just necessarily Jewish people. There are other, there are other yeah. subgroups. So right. you know, like the Syrian Marianites, who are you know have some Semitic roots, right? Or the uh, the Ethiopian sheep herders out there that have Semitic, mm-hmm. uh, a Semitic genetically Semitic. You mm-hmm. know, are they included in the report? Mm-hmm. Amorites. Yeah. You know. <laughs> Yeah. No one what, I'm surprised, <clears throat> what I'm surprised at is that they feel that they need government support to to uh, combat anti-Semitism, because it seems that so much so much of our uh, media and uh, some of our politicians and major institutions are already dedicated to that. Hmm. There are certainly many accusations of it that are made and thrown around that are not valid at all. It, it, it's really just a case of somebody saying that they don't like something that Israel is doing, so therefore they get accused of anti-Semitism, and uh, anti-Semitism mm. is uh, very flexible. It can mean just about anything, and to be accused is to uh, be declared guilty. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Here's, here's an interesting list of Semitic peoples uh, 
the Akkadians, which includes both the Assyrians and the Babylonians. Yeah. Uh, the Ebleites, whom I'm not familiar with, the Ugarites, who have the you know the mm-hmm. Ugaritic things, Canaanites, Phoenicians, Hebrews, obviously you know them, uh, Aramaeans, Chaldeans, Amorites, Moabites, Edomites, the Hyksos, which were a mm-hmm. uh, early Egyptian people, yeah. uh, Arabs, Nabataeans, uh, the Magonites, I don't know them, mm-hmm. uh, the Shebans, uh, the Queen of Sheba, mm-hmm. uh, the Satus, the Maltese, and the Mandians as well as the Ethiopian as well as Ethiopian mm-hmm. Semitic peoples. Um, I wonder if wow. any of those are included in the anti Semitic listed by name. Yeah. yeah. Like this is you know, sub subsection paragraph five updates us on what's going on with the Magonites. So if you were speaking against President Assad of Syria, you could be technically anti Semitic. <laughs> he, he is he is a is he a uh is well, he Assyrian? He'd be the Assyrian background. All of Syria yeah. and northern Iraq are all yeah. considered the Assyrian territory, basically. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, some of the uprisings and stuff that happened in Beirut, there's got to be some Phoenicians there that just never moved on. Well, yeah. that's that's true. It gets a little complicated, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. You try to sort out playing favorites of certain favorite groups and not favorite groups. And yeah. In trying to, you almost need somebody like Heinrich Himmler to come along to help define to us. Who are the good pure Yikes. stock and who aren't, you know, <laughs> when you start playing that game, you know. Yeah. Uh, well, this is something you're going to research further, right? Yeah. It's a it's a very interesting. Will you I'm let us sure know what if any of our Futurians or us have, have broken any of the provisions? Made, made it onto the list. Yeah. Well, uh, if I, I think I might be on the list somewhere, uh, but I, I can't be sure. <laughs> well, we had we'd actually submitted you, Ben, to several of them, but it was under duress. <laughs> well, thanks. Well, actually, we were paid for it, but, yeah, we, we put you on the list. Uh, c- can I read a little something here that is um, not quite from the top-down kind of issue of of directing toward uh, race and uh, religion relations? Brother Tom? I'm sorry. I was still on That's okay. Is there something else you wanted to share on that? No. I, okay. I, I mean, I'm reading, I'm reading up on it, but really I'm okay. just going to, you know. Well, let me just share something that rather than – at a government level, trying to create a new commission or group and trying to use the power of the government to make us, you know, treat each other nicely. Here, Here's an action that's being done, sort of like what Brother Ben was talking about earlier, about small solutions like Wendell Berry talks about. And this one really touched me. Uh, this, this was from an email I printed out from uh, Brother Abe, who listens to our show. And I got his permission to let me read this email. He says... Uh, Doc and Tom, he says, you asked a few months ago for testimonies regarding experiences with Muslims. He said, I hadn't realized until recently that witnessing to Muslims was what I had been doing for over a year. He says, over 18 months ago, forced by job loss and foreclosure, God brought my family of nine into the section, of our, yeah, into the section of our city called the ghetto. I used to not use that term out of respect for our Jewish brothers and sisters who experienced a real ghetto in the 1940s. But I have come to realize that poverty has been ghettoized Nazi-style in most mid-to-large-sized American cities. The police department admits to using a forced uh, firefighting approach to my neighborhood. Okay, Ben, I think you'd be interested in this and our listeners. This is a real view of what it's like in the inner city. Okay, the police approach is contain the crime... Don't let it spread to the good neighborhoods and hopefully burn itself out. Sometimes literally considering a high rate of arson. So if you're understanding what he's saying here, the police says, 
It's sort of like that Escape from New York movie. They want to keep all the criminals in one neighborhood, let them do what they want, just don't let it get to the affluent ones, okay? He says there's actually a good racial, racial diversity here, but not economic diversity. Hunger, eviction, and health problems are universal conditions. Moving here, we were not some financially backed missionaries with an axe to grind. We were fellow travelers through a heartbreaking valley seemingly devoid of hope. But we had one thing to give, a new message that many had never heard. The gospel? Nope, that is very prominent in our hood. The sad thing is the rarest message is the message behind the gospel, the one Christians don't share because they don't often understand that the deepest message of love from our God. It is the message that you have worth. You were made in God's image. While sin makes you unworthy, we are all equally worthy of love, equally worth of others' time and effort as any suburban money bags. As the churches seek prosperity and physical growth like new buildings and bigger parking lots, do you think they invest in inviting those without pennies to spare for the offering plate? This is before telling the downtrodden they are sinners, we must try to show them they are beautiful, wonderful creations. Without that foundation, what difference does sin make? If you believe you are trash because the TV, the cops, the storekeepers, the mall security, teachers and parents all tell you you are trash, what difference does the saint, the taint of sin make? Love your neighbors yourself is practiced every day in my neighborhood, but no one loves themselves, but will often admit hmm. they hate themselves. Hence, murder, drugs, revenge, fights, fires, etc., one morning, I walked downstairs at 5 a.m. to find a man in my house. He had already t taken and sold the TV and was coming back for more. That's I'd, sort of a blessing. Yeah. I chased him away by, well, by God's protection because a few days later, he pulled a knife on a guy during a different robbery. Tom, that means you, yeah. will understand when I say that I owe that man some thanks anyway. He saved my Louisville Slugger from getting shards of TV screen all over it. Uh, better, better to use an aluminum. So but, your, yeah. your, your view is catching on here. Sweet. Okay, he says, uh, okay, sorry for the rant. The story you asked for involves our neighbors. They are refugees from Sierra, the Sierra Leone War in the 1990s and are Muslim. Through slow and steady relationship, they trust me to watch their children and to watch over their house. Okay, these are Muslim people, okay? And they, they fled persecution. Mm -hmm. I have been asked to intervene during domestic violence, nurse the children's wounds when their mother couldn't, and feed the children when poverty inevitably ends the month with hunger. Recently, the matriarch, he's got her name here, flew back to Africa to be with her dying father. She told me in tears, I leave my family in your hands. I said, God bless you. I will pray for you and your father. Her answer brought me to tears. She responded, and I know God hears you, Abraham. He, she, he says she loves saying my whole name. He says, I think it emphasizes our common spiritual roots in the Jewish history. Okay, so here's a Muslim fam poor Muslim family telling a poor Christian family, I know God hears you. Okay, well, during her absence... I've had opportunities to continue to bless this family. Then, on Monday, the 14-year-old boy came over to my porch and we talked for hours. 
We had talked before about some common questions we have about government and religion, but this time he asked me about my belief specifically. Okay, he's a little Muslim young man. He says he admitted that he had prayed in English and it felt like I was praying to the Christian God. He also talked about feeling very dizzy while bowing in prayer at the mosque, but not being dizzy when he did the same thing elsewhere. He says, I did my best, and I can only trust the Holy Spirit in me that what I said was helpful. But he got a good chunk of the gospel, a character sketch of Jesus, and a good answer to, if Hitler repented on his deathbed, do you think he would go to heaven? He said, I never thought about it before, but God showed me that Paul was a genocidal, a torturer who waged war against a faith. Practically, mm. Slobodan Milosevic, before Jesus, knocked him to the ground and blinded him. So or Mossad. Do what? Or Mossad. Well, <laughs> so, so there's hope for all, but the deathbed prayer had better be a deep, heart-changing truth, and God looks upon the heart. We then talked about the life choices in front of him. Okay, um, and it goes on, and he says, Anyway, God made all that happen. All we did was respond in love to those around us and answer honest questions honestly. Islam isn't some big scary opponent, but just a different set of blinders that people wear. Mm. And only God mm. can shine through. But boy, when he does shine through, nothing gets in the way. So don't forget to build up people with real love and respect. They may not have enough of those two things to care about the consequences of sin or the prospect of salvation. By the way, I'm not some saint or even a nice guy. My wife affectionately calls me a bad word that characterizes my interactions with other humans. I admit I'm often a jerk, but I'm working on it. I'm definitely not the type who exudes love for others out of every pore. But God works anyway and is glorified in my shortcomings. Pray for me because... Um, when he, he, he says another relationship God seems to be growing is with a crack-dealing, cross-dressing, registered sex offender uh, nearby. He says that challenge makes a Muslim look less intimidating. When love is a commodity to be traded to meet other needs, Jesus has to work miraculously. But hey, it's Jesus we're talking about here. <laughs> he, he says, I love you guys and thank you for all you do for us. And I meant the first that first part. Futurian for life, Abe. Fat city. Thanks, Abe. That was good. Uh, you know, there was a very moving, the, uh, email. This is the par yeah. part where he was happy by getting rid of his TV. Yeah. Well, you know, when I sent something back to him, I just, you know, I don't want to get into her heresy any more than we have to on this show. I sure don't want to get heresy <laughs> hunter after me. But, but what, what I, my first reaction when I read that. And it really just took my breath away reading that narrative and how they're living life, one poor person to the next, is that, you know, I, I am deeply committed to the gospel and to God's word. Mm -hmm. I believe it's the only sh sure thing that we know to understand God's will, his nature, what he created, how it works. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when you take the gospel and as much as we should all be reading it a lot more than we do and practicing it, there's only so many ways you can express the nature of God in human words. Whether they're Hebrew, they get translated into English, all these other kind of things. And, it, and you can go so far to understand the nature of God. I would say what, what Brother Abe was doing, as discussed in here, is actually experiencing the nature of God to a greater extent than even what words can express on paper. 
totally, totally agree. There's something about there's something about the other dimensional, and that's even a poor word to use. The other dimensional nature of loving people in a just loving them, you know, without any other strings attached. You know, we had I think you were there. We were talking to talking with one of the speakers there at the at the future congress who said that you know he likes apologetics and everything, but the thing that kind of shoots himself in the foot is the fact that the dude that uh, the he got saved because a dude came over to his house and studied the Bible with him for a couple months. It was the fact that he was just so pure, mm-hmm. you know. He just uh, he would I guess the the the, the 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 speaker at the time not a Christian would ask him crazy questions and the guy would go I don't know mm-hmm. what is that I don't know what that is and and uh, he just said he was the fact about it was is he was just so so pure it just like yeah. Did something. You know, the point I'm getting at, you know, the Bible's holy, and we should all, we should read it cover to cover, live it, memorize it, you know, do everything it says. It's holy, it's, it's, it's complete, it's the Word of God. But words can only express so much until you really experience living the Christian life and relying on the Holy Spirit, the, a full grasp of what God is in His nature. And, you know, it would be foolhardy for me to say, that poverty could ever be a blessing, particularly, you know, when I'm not experiencing mm-hmm. it. I don't know the, the want and the hunger and the depression and all that kind of stuff with it. But but even in that dark cloud here, what what I see created in these kind of environments in, in, in shared poverty between mm-hmm. Muslims, Christians, and other people is that it completely gets rid of the pretense. All of the foolishness that we deal with with our big churches and all these kind of things that we show that are big differences, you basically... You've got people here that are struggling to live, and they're counting on each other to watch their kids, to help crisis in each of their lives, to get them back from day to day. Mm-hmm. And, and it tears down all these other kind of walls we put where suddenly they can start talking about the nature of God in a very honest way. Mm-hmm. I was uh, I had a chance to read just a few pages in C.S. Lewis's book, The Problem of Pain, yesterday. And there was a quote from George MacDonald, who was a uh, kind of a literary mentor of C.S. Lewis's at the very beginning. I can't remember the exact quote, but it was something to the effect that one of, one of God's purposes in sending Christ to the earth was to show us how to suffer like him. That uh, the purpose is not to free us from suffering, but to show us. What suffering is supposed to look like, that we are supposed to be conformed to Christ and his suffering. And I thought that that was a powerful thing. Mm-hmm. It sounds yeah. like that's what this guy is going through yeah. in his circumstance. And you know what? I don't think he ever threatened to kill any of these Muslim people, nor did the Muslim people threaten to kill him. He would if he knew it was good for him. Uh, they didn't seem like... Sorry, they, that's a complete joke. They, did, they didn't play into the uh, agenda of high-level people in either community that wanted to achieve other some other kind of political or mm-hmm. other kind of agenda, they were they were people reaching out to each other. Uh, it's interesting that this suffering came up because it always reminds you of that verse that nobody ever sort of puts in their little like scripture memory box. For it has been granted to you for the for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him but also suffer for His sake. 
Mm-hmm. You don't see that one no. all that much in there. No. And I, when's the last time Joel Osteen preached on that? I don't remember. I don't know, man. Yeah. I, I shouldn't I pick on him. Either. I'm sorry. Philippians, <laughs> Philippians 1, 28. Yeah. Some of our listeners really like him. I don't mean to, to pick on him. Yeah. But um, the, the, th- the other thing that his message in this is that um, we got to remember, you know, those of us who come from a Protestant background really sort of latch onto the depravity of man part, mm-hmm. that we really are real sinners, and we are real sinners. Yep, and we need horrendous. the Holy Spirit to break through without without God's help there's no way that we can can even understand the nature of our repentance but but as we get that message out we also got to realize that you know I don't hang around the, the poor as much now Jesus hangs out with the poor you That's hang out Jesus. with the poor every Tuesday night <laughs> oh <laughs> you're wealthy kind of, what am I saying uh, but you know there's people praying for you by the way Tom Bionic yeah. too and stuff but the thing is, I don't hang out enough because that's who Jesus hangs out with. In Jesus' mindset, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus' mind is one that he felt more comfortable hanging out with the poor. Mm-hmm. That's who he really was, was in, in the groove with. And so when he when they talk here about the mindset of the poor, it's basically self-loathing. And they don't value life, value themselves. So therefore, that's all these things that we think are self-destructive that we say, oh, those people down in the inner city, look at that. They're shooting drugs in each other and shooting each other up. And, you know, when are they going to finish up and clear out the, you know, the ghetto? We find out there was such self-loathing that they're imprisoned in, in an imprison that's somewhat of their own making. But also it's imposed upon them by a community that wants to keep them locked up in it. And doesn't want their kind spreading anywhere. And, and, and a heritage of generations before that have put them without any hope. And so when we take the gospel to these people, which are the majority of the people on earth, by the way. Right. We should maybe consider that this whole idea of showing them that God loves them and that they have value being in the image of God needs to be preached alongside the whole depravity of man. And I, I, I think our listener who's living it in the inner city is on to something there that uh, yeah. we maybe spend as much time trying to lift a man up out of the hole as knock him into it, you know? Um, yeah. I mean, I think that the whole cult of positive thinking that a lot of people in the American church have bought into doesn't help us when it comes to dealing with these people uh, because it, uh, it causes us to judge them, I think, more harshly, just like you were saying, Yeah. Uh, than we should. And that has been my experience, my limited experience dealing with uh, people, uh, uh, dealing with poor people is that they, they do have those self-destructive attitudes. But uh, I think what you were trying to get at and tell me if I'm wrong here is that uh, because they are poor in spirit, they're more open to receive the gospel, more open to live by Christ would have them live because they have such a low opinion of themselves. They realize that the that they are not perfect. That they uh, they need help. Are, yeah, go ahead. They need help. Yeah, they're, they're not self. I I you know I am rich and have need of nothing. Yeah, that's not them. No. <laughs> and uh, Jesus, Jesus wrote the gospel to the poor. And, you know when he was what in Isaiah when he was reading began his ministry. I came to proclaim the gospel to the poor. Yes. Mm-hmm. Very good that you remember that passage, yeah. And what he told the rich person is, well, yeah, I guess rich person you could make it, but 
You know, it's pretty hard. You know, it's the yeah. rest of life. Everything else in life, it's hard for the poor guy, and it's easy right. for the rich guy. The kingdom yeah. of heaven is easy for the poor guy, and it's hard for the rich guy. <laughs> hmm. yeah. yeah, don't you think it's interesting that uh, when God chose to become a man, He chose to become a carpenter and not, you know, a judge or a or a king or a priest. Or a teacher, or something, or a doctor, something like that, some high position. But he chose a low position. Mm-hmm. They put him with the with a with a class of unruly, rough, tough kind of people. Mm-hmm. And those were the people that he preferred to be with, and mm-hmm. preferred to be himself. And those people became disciples of his, whereas the upper class people, the Sadducees, the others, they became his his bitter enemies because they saw him as a rival. Uh, rather than one that could help him, brother yeah. Tom, do you have something else to share with us? Yeah, here? I sure do. I've been I did a little Bible search on the word suffering, and uh, I gave it gave it some sort of context and stuff. Yeah. Uh, here's a great one: Romans eight seventeen. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in His sufferings, in order that we may also share in His glory. Mm-hmm. That's pretty <laughs> laying it right up there, man. Mm-hmm. Like we're sharing in His glory when we share in His sufferings. It's like wow. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, if you're gonna walk in His His footprints, you gotta walk through the through the abusive part of the footprints that He went through. Yeah. If you're gonna get to the glorified part of it, we work Just, with our own hands. This is Corinthians, First Corinthians. We work with our hands. Work with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. Uh, uh, yeah, there's more here. Was that written by Ben Carmack? Uh, <laughs> no. Sounds like the gospel according to Ben there. Yeah. Working yeah, with your own hands. <laughs> Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly are we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Hmm. So we fix our eyes not only what is not not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Is that a good Tom Bionic passage for this week and his life? Yeah, pretty much his whole life. <laughs> yeah. Well, any other? You got another story for us, brother Tom, or something else you want to share there? But no. Well, can I can I share just a little brief newsletter? Please do. You know, I'm I worry because I have some stories on some other things, and I know people like variety, and I know probably I've been beating the drum on this whole thing about the the Muslim thing, and people get sick of it. But it it is a big thing in our society right now, and it's something I'm burdened about. Mm-hmm. And I do have I do have some other stories, but this is just a newsletter, and I, this is a positive thing. Okay, um, this is from a missionary that I have followed, and I know this gentleman personally for 35 years. Okay, mm-hmm. and oh I, yeah, I this is his, good. pretty sure I know him too. And yeah. I followed his missionary work. This is a man who has um, led a number of people to Christ in the churches established in Africa. And then he was called to the Middle East, and he's been doing the same thing there. And uh, he, he is my sanity check on the real world. And I want to tell all of our listeners that if if you would like to get your best shot, if you're going to hear from somebody else about the way the world works, go get stuff from your missionaries. Missionaries yeah. aren't selling something. They don't have a corporate sponsor that 
that you know this brought to you by so and so. Okay, um, they're just out there trying to do the Lord's work. Now they're all going to be influenced by the people in their community or whatever. But you know the Bible says out of the mouths of many witnesses that word is confirmed. So uh, I, I recommend that. But anyway, here's here's just some word I, I believe I can share. I don't see anything sensitive in this. Um, but it's sort of a summary on uh, some of his ministry to date. Uh, and, and he quotes at the top uh, of this. He says, uh, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. Out of Second Timothy 1.7. And uh, he says, uh, Our summer on home assignment was flying by. We're speaking at a different church. Sunday is catching up with many of you as possible during the weeks and spending as much time with children. They're on furlough just for a few months. It says, uh, as we travel and speak at various places, many of you are saying things like this. Quote, we've never heard anything positive about Muslims or the Quran before. All we've heard is that Muslims are out to kill us and that we should be very afraid of them. Of course, there are some dangerous extremists out there. And obviously, we admit that as well, too. Sure. Okay. It's very curious to find out who's funding them. Uh, it ends up being very close to home. But, yeah, they're there. Okay, it says, but after living in a Muslim country for nearly two years, we have yet to meet one. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, our Muslim friends and neighbors lavished us with gifts and hospitality. Sometimes supper would be hanging on the doorknob when we got home. See, these are the dangerous Muslims we hear about here by our Christian media. They probably poisoned it. There's razor blades in there. Probably did, because, you know, what we're told here with our leaders is that the nicer that they are to you, the more they're going to get you. I believe The Onion had a great article saying that hard, good, hardworking Muslims were coming here, uh, and they were actually deep, uh, deep cover moles that after 25 years of service, they were going to have children that would there then by okay. become Muslim extremists. Okay. And so by, like, working honest jobs, like yeah. in a taxi cab or a hotel them. or something yep. like that, that was a sign of the plan. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. He, he says uh, other times they, their, their Muslim neighbors, would bring gifts, scarves, books, jewelry, food, and they tell us that they've been praying for us. They also shared their feelings with us about how they missed their families and how they wanted their children to have hope for the future. Okay, our friends had no problems. He's talking about Muslim friends. Our friends had no problems with talking about Jesus. Why would they? Now, here's something interesting. Because okay? they, they couldn't get the 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 bomb belt turned probably, on. Probably, yeah. Enough. Now, now here's something that will probably disturb some people. Okay, but I'm going to read it anyway. He says, "Did you know that the Quran mentions Jesus 80 times in the most respectful way?" Okay. A lot better than the Talmud. And here's a list. <laughs> I mean, I, well, I was just reading a book that, on it. It does mention Jesus in the Talmud, and they, they say that he is boiling an excrement. Well, uh, is yeah, that right. They, there's a there's a common there's a common word there they that translate to whore son, basically. Okay. All I've right. got a I've got a book on it. I just I've just been rec- yeah, recently reading. They mention the Talmud. Yeah. Okay. Here's here's what our Christian Christian missionary says. It says Jesus is the only one mentioned in the Quran who. And he lists these attributes of Jesus in the Quran that are actually has the Quran citation. I'm not going to read the Quran citation, but it says, was born of a virgin, was conceived through the Holy Spirit, existed before his birth, is sinless, is called the Word of God, creates, heals, raises the dead, is an example for us, is called the Messiah or Christ, was aided by the Holy Spirit, was raised 
by God to himself is currently alive is the promised mercy from God and and Muslims are told in the Quran to obey Jesus hmm. okay now these he has the quotes out of the Quran he's not saying that the Quran is an ordained inspired word of God what I understand this to mean this is my commentary is that through all the stuff that went on, God made sure there was something that we could work from to be a bridge to our Muslim friends. That there's even something there we can work from. And as you know from the classes we've taken, the Quran even says to read the New Testament, which is an, huh. right, right, Tom, which is an ideal place for us when we talk to a Muslim person to give justification for us to talk about a New Testament view of who Jesus sure. is. Sure, the Quran, Surah 3. To however they, they yeah. do that. So even though the Hadiths, the letter writings, talk about all this corruption of the the Christian Bible and things like that, the the Quran itself, the original document that says, they go use, read says go read it, <laughs> yeah. which is an opportunity we as Christians have. Okay, but but uh, this missionary continues. He says there's more, but the point is is that if we can get past being afraid of each other. We have many things we can discuss with our Muslim friends. Muslims are frequently excited to talk about Jesus. Of course there are differences. But Jesus said if he was lifted up, he would draw men unto him. This is the same verse I've really been thinking about. It says, we are witnesses to the amazing, awesome Jesus. Sweet. And, uh, you know, this, this is someone who has actually borne fruit for the Lord. Yeah. Brought souls to the kingdom, probably hundreds, uh, e- even you know even from Islam. But you know what? He didn't go there and kick him in the head and say, "Why do you want to kill us? And why are you so inferior and worship this nutty moon god?" You know. Now, now <laughs> that's that, a way to get in good. Now with that him. I've enticed you, yeah. now that you you, you now see that this I've you. yeah, accept my version of who God is. No, yeah. he establishes relationships. He finds out what is noble and virtuous in these people, which there's plenty. He establishes a, a positive rapport, give and take, out of respect, not exploitation. Not because I'm going to get a notch on my Bible. It's because you are someone who's trying to seek and find God. And what he has found is, and, and this is the interesting thing, is that if, if, if they know that you're a legitimate person not trying to manipulate them, and you open the Word of God together, they come to self-discovery. When they read the Bible, it is good news. Mm-hmm. For everyone who really wants to seek God, it's good news. Yeah. And that's, yeah. And that's what we forget. And you know, our, our Christian leadership is telling us to do all of these horrible things to a people who all they need to do is we need to be able to show them the Bible. You know? And, and, and at the same time, they're, they're a very wonderful people. You know, the, the, some Christians have told me recently, they said, well, what, what do you think? What do you think about uh, this terrible influx of all these Muslims that keep coming in? What do you think about it? And I said, man, I, I sure hope God keeps sending them. You know, I hope we're found faithful as God continues to send them. You know, he's making it easy. We don't have to go over in their lands to do it. He's he's bringing them right here to hear the good news. So I'm on my soapbox. I apologize. If you all don't want to comment, I'm sorry. That's that's it on my 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 end on that. Yeah, yeah, that's, um, that's interesting. I've, I've, I've had, I've been able to talk about Jesus a little bit with a uh, Muslim that I know, 
And uh, one of the surprising things that he told me was is that uh, Muhammad uh, saw himself and is presented as a powerful warrior, you know, as a person who commands respect. And he says Jesus, on the other hand, was a uh, was not that. He was uh, he was patient and suffering. And what he seemed to be saying to me was that Jesus was closer to the to the ideal of uh, what God wants from us than Muhammad was, and this was a Muslim speaking, uh, which I thought was interesting. Uh, the, many of many Muslims have this admiration of Christ that you don't necessarily always know about unless you mm-hmm. probe a little bit. Mm-hmm. But just just not Christians. They have not Christian. Yeah, they have it for well, Jesus yeah. Christ, but just not the way Christians act. Yeah, yeah, they they because they associate Christians with you know our corrupt Western influence and occupying armies and so on. Well, yeah. we have provided them wonderful things like Baywatch and Dallas. Those are our uh, number two biggest sure exports. Those are two <laughs> biggest exports. <laughs> To the whole world, including the Middle East. David Hasselhoff is our biggest export? Yes. You know what? Seriously, our entertainment is our, I believe monetarily, our biggest export to the rest of the world is our entertainment mm. system. Uh, Tom, do you or Ben have anything else you all want to add? I think you, we sort of covered it. I mean, Baywatch. Well, Baywatch is Baywatch. You know, I have a, uh, I have something. I don't know if you all care. This, this pushes the envelope even further. Great. But Carl Medeiros was on CN. It was in CNN. Would you like to hear what he has to say, or you want to hear something different? Roll, roll. Okay. Let's do it. Now, now, if if we've already had some people that are burning effigies of us, now they we are going to do it on this. And that, that's my last thing on the on on Muslim stuff. Okay, this is the last thing. Mm. These just came up. Okay, so this was uh, Carl Medeiros, who's been on our show before. Wrote a book called. He's a um, Christian um, disciple of Christ. Leads leads Muslims and others to Christ, uh, wrote Muslims, Christians, and Jesus. And his his provocative article here says, Why Evangelicals Should Stop Evangelizing. And this is on the CNN belief, belief log, okay? Uh, it says he's an international expert on Arab-American and Muslim-Christian relations and is author of the book, Speaking of Jesus, The Art of Non-Evangelism. Okay? And here's what Carl says. He says, Let's do an exercise. I want you to fill in the blank on what you think you know about me based upon what I'm about to tell you. He says, here goes. Twenty years ago, I became a missionary. My wife and I left our home in Colorado Springs, Colorado, to move to Beirut, Lebanon. Our job description was to plant churches and to evangelize to Muslims. Based upon what I just said, Carl Medeiros is a blank. What would you say? How would you describe him, either of you two? Mm. Well, I, I I already know who he is, so it's unfair. Okay. Well, I'm going to skip. Um, say Go that, ahead, Ben. Ben. Evangelist. That would is that what? would that would sound. I would say a good answer. Man, but. <laughs> okay. Carl says, depending on your background, the blank may look something like this. Carl Medeiros is a quote hero of the Christian faith, a saintly Superman willing to sacrifice the comforts of home in order to share the love of Jesus Christ with those who've never heard the gospel. Or this, Carl Medeiros is a, quote, right-wing extremist who destroys cultures 
tears apart families and paves the way for neo-colonialist crusaders to invade, occupy, and plunder the resources of local populations. Occupy till I come. Yeah. (laughs) Quite a range, isn't it? He says, for one group of people, the words evangelist and missionary bring to mind pious heroes performing good deeds that are unattainable for the average Christian. Now, that would be the kind of how we were raised, most of us. For another group, and these are usually the people that the missionaries go to, for another group, those same words represent just about everything that's wrong at the world. He says, I understand the confusion. Based upon my experiences of living and traveling around the world, I know that religion is often an identity marker that determines people's access to jobs, resources, civil liberties, and political power. When I lived in Lebanon, I saw firsthand how destructive an obsession with religious identity could be. Because of the sectarian nature of Lebanese politics, modern Lebanese history is rife with coups, invasions, civil wars, and government shutdowns. When I tell my Christian friends in America that some of the fiercest militias were and are Christian, most are shocked. It doesn't fit with the us-versus-them mentality that evangelism fosters, in which we are always the innocent victims and they are always the aggressors. Okay, Here's one of our Christian guys saying this. He says, this us-versus-them thinking is odd. Given that Jesus was constantly breaking down walls between Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, men and women, sinners and saints. And that's why we have the parable of the Good Samaritan. Okay? He says, uh, Jews in Jesus' day thought of the Samaritans as violent heretics, much the same way as Christians think of Muslims today. The idea that a Samaritan could be good was scandalous to first century Jews. And that's certainly what we hear in our mainstream Christian media, right? Jesus was the master of challenging religious prejudice and breaking down sectarian walls. Why do so many Christians want to rebuild those walls? Even the Apostle Paul insisted that it's faith in Jesus that matters, not converting to a new religion or a new socio-religious identity. Okay, A lot of people are going to misunderstand that. He wants to, to distance what we know as a religion, which in the rest of the world means a political group, a social group, a certain ethnic you know, background. He says, what if evangelicals today, instead of focusing on, quote, evangelizing and converting people, were to begin to think of Jesus not as starting a new religion, but as the central figure of a movement that transcends religious distinctions and identities? Okay, now that's a pretty heavy thought. Yeah. Okay, it's a lot for those of us who have been raised in conventional Christian environment to get our arms around. What I interpret him as saying is, Jesus Christ is a lot more than what we structure as Christian culture. Yeah. You know, that's interesting because one of the things that I've been seeing uh, with, uh, at, at least through the people that I associate with of late, is that there is an increasing push from people my age and younger to be at least maybe loosely connected with the church, but that's about it. You know, mm-hmm. whereas in the past it was like ministry grew out of the church. Right. Now it's like some people, like, they'll go to church twice a month or whatever, and they don't really yeah. know anybody there. But in the interim interim time, they, like, like one guy, one guy, like, like uh, a friend of his passed away, and the first thing out of his mouth was, has anybody prayed for him to be raised from the dead? And they all went, whoa, what? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and another guy <laughs> is out there feeding the homeless, and, you know, like, like, 
and other guys out there ministering to, you know, trying to minister to other fringe communities, yeah. and another guys out there, you know, going right. into the barrio at night, uh, you know, trying to tell people about Jesus and trying not to get shot in the in the process, mm-hmm. and it's like, and then they go to church and you know, it's it's worshipful and they get yeah. the word and everything, but it's like some other there's like some other thing going on, and and I'll tell you, interestingly. Part of part of what's been kind of on my mind today is that you know I almost feel like I'm being sort of pushed in that direction a little bit, mm-hmm. you know. Mm. I, I guess I'm already in that because you know I'm involved in church and stuff, but that's really only part of mm-hmm. kind of what goes on. Right. Well, you know, he says something more provocative here. He says Jesus is the uniter of humanity, not Jesus the divider. How how might that change the way we look at others? Now. I'd just like to comment on that. Um, as we do know, Jesus will div- can divide families because some that will yep. choose to follow Christ and some that three don't. Three against two and two against three. Even people whatever. that have the same religious tradition, he can divide them. Mm-hmm. But what he is saying is that w- while up to the point of Jesus, you had people due to where you were raised, your tribe, your region, your whatever, you had this God or that God or whatever, mm-hmm. Jesus is really bringing all people unto him. You know, and it was unheard of to think the Gentiles Word. would be part of him. What what I fear, some of our, and many of our listeners understand what Carl's saying here. Many of our listeners may misinterpret this to mean that he's talking about Chrislam, or that it doesn't matter what you believe, you can believe whatever. Um, but what I understand from Carl's testimony consistently, as I've heard it, is that he says if we keep selling an institution, and an institution we know as Christianity, we're not going to get anywhere. Yeah. If we focus on the person and work of Jesus Christ, it's almost it's almost all the like we sort of tied ourselves to the gospel, you know, like we've strapped ourselves to the gospel, and we've we've yeah. got a backpack full of stuff that can be it's constructive not that the in our gospel's own culture. Wrong. Yeah, I don't want people to yeah. think like you're saying there's something wrong with the gospel. No, the no, gospel's no. what's right. It's us that's the problem. Yeah, yeah, and right. like, <laughs> we're we're kind of you know we're we're kind of like strapped to it. And but we've got a backpack full of traditions that may or yeah. may not be ne- be necessary or even right in right. other cultural contexts. And a whole bunch of stuff of really really bad stuff done in the name of Christianity and legitimately bad stuff that we're not fessing up to to level with people. Yeah. It may not all been done on your watch or mine, but it was stuff done under Christianity, and that's what they're seeing when they see this. And we gotta we gotta recognize that and level if we're gonna reach the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know. Uh, he says, uh, this is more than a semantic difference. When I used to think of myself as a missionary, I was obsessed with converting Muslims, or anybody for that matter, to what I thought of as, quote, Christianity. I had a set of doctrinal litmus tests that the potential convert had to pass before I would consider them in or one of us. Funny thing is, Jesus never said, go into the world and convert people to Christianity. What he said was, go and make disciples of all nations disciples of himself encouraging anyone and everyone to become an apprentice of jesus without manipulation in a is a more open dynamic and relational way of helping people who want to become more like jesus regardless of their religious identity just because i believe that evangelicals should stop evangelizing doesn't mean that they should stop speaking of jesus i speak of jesus everywhere i go and with everyone i meet as founder and president of a company called International Initiatives, my work is aimed at building relationships among Christian leaders in the West and Muslim leaders in the Middle East. 
It may come as a surprise to many Christians that Muslims are generally open to studying the life of Jesus as a model for leadership because they revere him as a prophet. But now that I'm no longer obsessed with converting people to Christianity, I've found that talking about Jesus is much easier and far more compelling. I believe that doctrine is important. Okay, I want to make sure he says that. I sure hope so. He says that doctrine is important, but it's not more important than following Jesus. Jesus met people where they were. Instead of trying to figure out who's in and who's out, why don't we simply invite people to follow Jesus and let Jesus run his kingdom? Inviting people to love, trust, and follow Jesus is something the world can live with. And since evangelicals like to say that it's not about religion, but rather a personal relationship with Jesus, perhaps we should practice what we preach. Mm. And, you know, he's always sort of pushing us to the edge here. And, and I guess, speaking for myself personally, the only thing that, that I have to circle the wagons around, you know, and what I understand the reality that Jesus preaches is the, the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. I don't know yeah. how we get around that. Uh, not that I say that all of us, everyone in the world, completely understand, you know, the full complexities of that. Mm-hmm. You know, we can only have a childlike faith in grasping what, what all that means. But I think that is the central core of what, Jesus came to preach mm-hmm. was that uh, what we can't do, God can do, and God took the nothing initiative is impossible with God. Yep. And he, so, so you know, when, when I read something like what he says, I have to make sure that it's not divorced from what I think. You know, is that essential? But there's a whole lot of wiggle room in that mm-hmm. for for people to come from where they are to grasp a God who's willing to take actions on their behalf mm-hmm. uh, for their for their restoration and, and their sin. Ben, what are your thoughts on uh, some of the things that he said? Well, uh, I have I had a piece on my blog not too long ago, kind of on this subject, and I was kind of going in the direction that Carl is going there, because um, I have I have some friends who are very interested in doctrine. They would like to become preachers someday. Uh, we have a big Southern Baptist seminary here in Louisville. And a lot of good people I know who go there, and I'm not opposed to seminary at all. But uh, one thing that I have noticed is that they they do tend to circle the wagons uh, around certain distinctive doctrines that I think in the long run probably do um, put some unnecessary barriers between people and Jesus. And maybe... Maybe if we could talk a little bit more about Jesus and a little less about John Calvin, we might get somewhere. Right. Or a bunch of other people. Yeah. <laughs> a yeah. bunch of other people. Right. You know, even exactly. Martin Luther. Yeah. I, hear, I hear your point. <laughs> and you know what? The thing is, those other kind of things, we cling to them because they become part of, in our whole brain and upbringing, part of the totality of what it means to be a Christian. Uh, and they're inseparable. But, yeah. you know, when we meet somebody who's not a Christian, whether they're a Muslim or from whatever tradition they are, they, they, they didn't have all that baggage. They didn't have all that stuff come in. And it can be a real impediment to us bringing them to what a really a simple faith is. Yeah. To me, it's, it's helpful to go, to go through and read the sermons in the book of Acts from the apostles. Yeah. Hmm. And see what they said. Yeah. See what they said the gospel was. And you won't hear very much of the things that we tend to emphasize. You'll hear about the life of Christ, the things that he did, the miracles that he worked, 
and that you need to repent and trust in him and so on. And it even says that Philip preached to the Ethiopian eunuch, preached unto him Jesus. That's all that it says. And we hear about people converting and starting churches, but we don't hear a whole lot about, you know, parsing all these tiny doctrinal issues. That's something that entered the church later. In part, the church became, what, what little church history I understand, about the second, third century, the church was being persecuted heavily, and a lot of key figures were being martyred, and Gnostic heretics mm-hmm. were everywhere, and so the church felt like it needed to establish this real rigid hierarchy to weed out the heretics. I mean, maybe maybe they needed to do that at that point in time. I'm not going to judge what they did, because right. I didn't live at that time. But by the time you get to the 3rd, 4th century, the church is a very... Um, inflexible organization, uh, very obsessed with being absolutely right about everything. And by the fifth century, you know, we have good good guys like Augustine, Saint Augustine, talking about how the Pope is has universal jurisdiction and all this kind of stuff. And that stuff entered in very early yeah. uh, into church history. And I think it was an unfortunate turn, if yeah. I had to say when when I thought about it. Well, also, also you had a theocracy created out of the government, and that gave them the power to actually persecute other Christians. Yeah, and Constantine, Constantine brought Christianity into a non-illegal mm-hmm. sort of stance. Well, I guess it was uh, his predecessor, uh, but he made it sort of the state-sponsored religion, and then, t- uh, not not more than twenty years later, decided that the Donatists, uh, a a sect that merely believed that people who who uh, recanted under under persecution couldn't come back into the church immediately. Uh, he decided that they needed to be killed. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> and most well, of these it, things it, had political reasons is. too yeah. why they did it. Yeah. yeah. Constantine, Constantine gets a bum rap, but if you read some of the letters of Saint Cyprian, who was the bishop of Carthage mm-hmm. during the middle of the third century, you already see the church is very hierarchically organized. There's already a separation sure. between clergy and laity yeah. that is already developed even before Constantine. Is this sort so, of possibly the Nicolaitan kind of prophecy that Jesus maybe referred to in Revelation? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, the battle between Paul and the Galatian uh, whatever you want to call them, the Judaizers or the mm-hmm. usual suspects or the right. rabble-rousers the battle between them and whoever they are and Paul, Paul seems to be on the losing side <laughs> over 2,000 yeah. years ago. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately. He, he got a lot of books in the Bible, but that didn't necessarily mean that the, his ideas no. necessarily yeah. were, uh, were were the main thing that were involved. Well, we're getting here to the end, and, and there was one thing I don't have time to share, but I want to give a headline because I thought Tom would get a hoot out of this. Um People could look it up if you want. It says Turkey's military chiefs resign over staged terror plot. I saw that. Yeah, uh, it's reported in the BBC. Typically in Turkey, historically anyway, yeah. what 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 happens is when military chiefs are on the out or they get caught doing something really stupid, they never go to jail. They always they always go into retirement. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. That's, okay. That that means that they got caught. 
Well, it says, as reported by the BBC, the heads of Turkey's armed forces, Navy, and Air Force have all resigned in response to a military plot. The plan, according to the BBC, reportedly involved plans to bomb mosques and to provoke tensions with Greece in order to spark political chaos and justify military takeover. So here, here's a Turkey another state-sponsored. to just run Greece into the ground. But it was a state-sponsored terror yep. that involved mosque bombing and stuff like yep. this. Okay. That's actually how Turkey got their start. In '55, they blew up a, they blew up a pro, tried to blow up a pro-Turkish museum in Thessalonica in '50, 50, '55, just to do the to do the exact same thing. Really? Yeah. Well, it says here it says. Uh, the plans from the investigation had measures including bombing two major mosques in Istanbul and assault on a military museum by people discri- disguised as religious extremists mm-hmm. and the raising of tension with Greece through an attack on a Turkish plane that was to be blamed on the Aegean neighbor. Mm-hmm. Sounds like the same kind of thing happened in Norway. I, yeah. I hate to say the comparison here. The Turkish military is claiming that the sledgehammer plot was merely a theoretical scenario designed to plan for unrest. It was developed in 2003 at a military seminar. Uh, 200 officers are on trial in the case. It says, interestingly, Turkish military leaders and U.S. brass met one day before bombs rocked Istanbul in 2003. Okay, the U.S. had their two cents then, too. Mm -hmm. Okay, banks ceased... uh, Paul Hansen, in in, uh, the late 70s, early 80s, got a phone call right after the last of the, la- the final of three Turkish military coups uh, that over the mm-hmm. last decade. He got a call from uh, uh, President, then President Carter, who was at the, at the opera, and he called him during the intermission, and he says, Paul, your people have just made a coup. Hmm. He didn't say the Turkish military. He says, Paul, your people yeah. have just made a coup. And it was all wow. these Turkish military chiefs and wow. you know, MIT politicos. Well, you know, when this happened in 2003, it says banks ceased quotes on the Turkish interbank foreign exchange market. The lira was defended by the Turkish Central Bank, which provided the necessary liquidity. The Central Bank statement was said to have stopped a crisis in the foreign exchange market. Yet at the same time, the Central Bank decision was also conducive to a decline in the Central Bank's reserves and capital outflow. Hmm. These movements on the equity and currency markets raise the following issue. Was there insider training or foreknowledge of the attacks? Which, there, is, was we know, just happened the day right of 911. Yeah. The same kind of thing. Yeah. That, that's, that same thing has been alleged in Turkey on a sort of the political movement of something that we covered a few months ago when we did the false flag thing. I think we yeah. did. I don't know if we actually made it to Turkey, but yeah. uh, Ergonacon. Uh, I think I pronounced that right. It's something I know less about, but it's a it was the political version of the false flag terrorism stuff that happened in Turkey under the Gray Wolves and the, okay. um, the Gray Wolves, uh, the Gray Wolves, MIT, and the Special Warfare Department. Okay. Well, um, can I just close with two quick emails? I was going to read more, but can we do only that real quick? It, only if it takes like two minutes. You got to go. Yeah, I have a I have a phone call here pretty quick. Oh, okay. I hate well, to, I hate to sound like a. I tell you what, I'm gonna no. Uh, I'm going to just do one, the okay. one brief one, okay? We'll get the rest of them later. Mm-hmm. This is from Sister Olivia. Uh, she says, I thought you'd appreciate this. While witnessing about Jesus, I referred a big leftist at my place of work to your site. I told him as someone who has been on the, quote, right side of the spiritual manipulation, I often find myself uncomfortable listening to your program. Huh. How about us? Yeah. But truth is truth. 
Amen, sister. You know, we come from that background, too, and it's uncomfortable for us, even as we report it. So mm-hmm. we're with you, sister. She says, so you'll, you'll be getting a new listener. It's amazing how this... For, for like half a show. <laughs> well, like we'll turn see. Off and they're like, ah, I hate these people. It says, uh, it's amazing how dispirited he was. And when I asked why he was not outraged by what the left was doing, he expressed powerlessness and resignation. He was open. For at least ten years, I've been mocked. Your site seems perfect for the left. No offense intended. Yeshua is Lord. You know what? I'll take that as a compliment. I am not a member of the left. I do not believe that uh, government is our Messiah or Savior. But I will say that people who are genuine liberals, that they do have a compassion. Mm -hmm. And I think they use the government because the church has been lacking in being their brother's keeper in our society. So I have some new sympathies that have been gained over the last year or two uh, over some things there. I know you got to go. Yep. Um, before we leave, I want to tell Merv if you could come in and tell our listeners how to contact us at FutureQuake. FutureQuake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or Internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay, we just got a few seconds. Ben, thanks for setting in for a, a special extended session here with us. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Pleasure. It was uh, interesting to hear what you all had to offer. Would you come yeah. in? Well, it was interesting to hear what you had to offer, and if you'd come back, I would sure appreciate uh, getting some more two cents from you on this stuff. Be sure and check out Ben's blog. Uh, we'll have it linked there in the archives of futurequake.com. And last word, Tom? None. Then I'm going to say, until next week, We hope your future will always be bright. Have a good day. I'll be the same. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. Quake, quake, quake.